Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. And, and he really makes a great case of why never free feed, right? Always portion feed your cats. And if you can, include some canned food for your cats. But if you're feeding just dry food and you portion feed twice a day, you know, that, that cat would not need any more than about a quarter cup twice a day. And, uh, and, yeah. and, and space those feedings out at least eight hours apart, like, or 12 hours apart, like when you get up in the morning and, you know, at dinner time at night or something like that. And then leave out lots of good fresh water for a cat. A cat, a cat especially needs a lot of moisture uh, because so many of them are so prone to uh, um, urinary tract issues from eating dry food because they get slightly dehydrated. That's why I really encourage at least one of the meals to be canned. So, that, so I'd really encourage you to do one dry meal, one canned I, meal. I've heard in nature they don't eat anything dry, and that's why we've got them on the Correct. Like, um, well, they don't drink much diet. water. Yeah, they don't drink much water in the wild. They they get a lot of their yeah. needed moisture from their prey, and that goes back to the very first of our discussion tonight that, you know, a prey animal would be about 70% water. And and so that's how they get a lot of their moisture that they eat. So, yeah, you're you're right. Yeah. Yeah, any any moisture you can get in your cat's diet will be extremely beneficial. So you no, carry – um, go ahead. I was just going to say, Scott, do you recommend putting a little water in, you said, a quarter cup for that cat all day, so put a little water with that dry food Uh, also? If the cat will eat it moist, uh, you can try it. Uh, A lot of times they they do want to crunch on that kibble. Uh, The other important thing to do when you're transitioning to our dry food off of a store-bought dry food, that store-bought dry Mm -hmm. cat food will have a uh, a coating on it that's called uh, natural flavoring, and basically it's uh, hydrolyzed protein in the form of MSG. So when you offer our oh, food, man. yeah, when you offer our food, make sure you offer it after it after all food's been withheld for eight hours to make sure the cat is hungry, and you'll have an easier time transitioning to a real natural food that doesn't have any of those. Uh, uh, natural flavoring. <laughs> oh, it's called natural flavoring or hydrolyzed protein. Yeah, I, yeah, it's a crime. They put that stuff in our food and the cat's food. Well, that's what I was kind of thinking about. You know, it's kind of a travel for me because I have to order to get to someplace near me. It's going to be about an hour or so. So i got to, you know, fuck it up and give it a shot. Well, you can uh, email us from our website. We'll send you a free sample, and uh, then you can get it real easy online at Chewy.com. Chewy, C-H-E-W-Y.com, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, if, you, if you don't have a close store to go to. But email us from our website, that naturelogic.com. We'll send you a couple of samples just to try it out. Okay. Well, thank you. Enjoyed the show. Yeah. Thanks, Steve. Mm-hmm. So, Scott, for, for a typical cat, a quarter cup of dry and a quarter can? About, about, a, 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 about a half a can. 
Okay. Yeah, our cat food is 5.5 ounces, so about a half a can for a for a regular 10-pound cat, 9- or 10-pound cat. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds good. I, I have definitely not been doing it the right way for sure. And yeah, I freeze, and I thought I was doing pretty cat, good. So I'm so glad I got a chance to have you on tonight. But we're coming up to that time when the evening's just about over. Uh, thank you very much. I would like to. I'll get with you, and we'll bring you back on a few more times, and we'll just try to get as many callers as we can, and uh, let the show mostly go from the callers. So sound good? Sure. I really appreciate being on tonight. It was a lot of fun. Well, thank you, Scott. I really appreciate it, and uh, we will talk later. And whenever you're in town, please let me know. I want to come by and say hello. You betcha. I sure will. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, everybody. We're going to bring Scott back because there's a lot of questions, and I want to have a, a show or two where we just let you call in and ask him a lot of questions because I'm sure tonight, just listening, there'll be questions you didn't think of or we ran out of time to get to. So uh, I think that'll be a a good thing. I learned a lot. I was feeding mine definitely too much dry food, and I wasn't putting water, and I guess I should have known better, but I didn't even think about it until Scott said that. So like I said, you're always learning, and it seems like the more I learn, the dumber I truly feel. So it's 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 fun to pick up and try to do a little better the next day. Uh as always, uh, it is a pleasure to be here, and if I can help you in any way, please contact me. Um, i like to say thanks to my, my buddy Steve O'Brien of Quality Computers. Uh, he's always there uh, helping me out, and a couple times I wouldn't even have been on the show if he hadn't uh, fixed me up on Skype, and you can reach him at 830-998-4381. And may, uh, may, as always, God bless you with health and happiness. And I always say to everybody, be very, very quick to listen and slow to speak and try to be understanding and, and forgiving and, and the best of health to all of you. And may God bless everybody. Uh, with all that, with all that health and happiness, you, you don't realize how important your health is for you or your pets until you lose somebody. And just recently, I saw uh, two close friends of mine that both lost cats within the last day or two. So sorry to hear that for those of you. I hope you're listening. Well, good night, everybody. We'll see you next Wednesday, God willing. Thank you. As if it were a foolish game, the way the evening breeze may tease a candle flame, the thousand dreams I dreamed, the splendid things I planned, I always built to last on weakened, shifting sand. I live by night and shun the naked light of day. And only now I see how the years ran away yesterday.
American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. obligations or relationship problems have you feeling stressed out when life is too much to handle use apothecary herbs emotional stress formula feel calm and more in control with herbs especially combined to provide the organic nutrition your system needs to help you cope complete instructions for maximum benefit and a money-back guarantee you've waited long enough call apothecary herbs now toll free 866 229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3Ws.thepowerherbs.com. Pandemics will be a part of our future. The question is, how do we protect ourselves? Are you willing to put your trust in untested vaccine, hoping it kills mutating viruses? Remember, in 1976, health officials tried to inoculate Americans with swine flu, and there was a 300% death rate for those inoculated, and millions were paid out in damages. God gave you a sophisticated immune system, and in times of need, you can make it 10 times stronger. So there's no need to panic. Just get prepared. Call Apothecary Herbs to order your upgraded pandemic kit. You will have eight professional strength formulas offering broad-spectrum immune-boosting protection. Take a stand. Have a plan. Have peace and request your pandemic kit today. Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free, 866-229-3663, or online, thepowerherbs.com. That's 866-229-3663, or thepowerherbs.com. heart condition and emergency rooms and medical doctors are not an option, you need our emergency heart attack kit. Five concentrated liquid formulas enter the system in 60 seconds to protect your heart muscle, strengthen heartbeat, increase circulation, relieve pain, and make breathing easier. When seconds count, you want all the help you can get with our emergency heart attack kit. Easy to use and portable in a one-pound compact kit for your purse, briefcase, or car. Call Apothecary Herbs now for your emergency heart attack kit, toll-free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3 wsthepowerherbscom
Talk Live. I'm your resident herbalist, Wendy Wilson. Hope you had a great day. We're here to empower you. That's what we like to do here on Herb Talk Live. Thanks for joining us on the American Voice Radio Network. We got a great show. Magical engineer Frank and I, we got it all wrapped up in a big bow on it. Uh, We're going to talk about how to get rid of heavy metals tonight. Also, we have on the list, we're going to talk about some, um, well, cancers on the list and as well as longevity. Mm-mm. Got lots to talk about and a quack report. Oh, and we even have a clip we're going to play in a little bit. We've played it before, but it's a good inspirational reminder of who we are here in America. And we have a quack report, but before we do that, big salute and semperify to our righteous men and women in uniform. I, of course, as you know, pray for them always and all of, for all of America. I'm praying for righteous leadership. I want righteous men with steals for backbone to stand up against wickedness and unrighteousness and to bring some justice back. Isaiah 59 says we're to plead to the Lord for truth and justice because that's, that's, only, that's the only thing he owes us, really. You know, if we get anything else, it's a plus. So let's uh, hit the knees, seek the Lord's face, you know, find salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. Mind the time. It grows short. And without further ado, let's do the quack report. Thanks, uh, Frank. What do we got here in the cracker? Let's see. Mm, this is a report from a Jean um, Twin. She's a social psychologist in the San Diego State University. Uh, she wants to explain why the millennial generation is more anxious. There's like a 80-year high of anxiousness, according to her. Um, so uh, 70 years ago, she states that we were told that was the greatest generation, World War II generation. She said later came Generation X, known as the slacker generation. Then today are the millennials, she says, and they're turning out to be, according to her, the most anxious generation. Well, I tend to agree. Uh, people are very anxious. Now, recent studies, she says, have shown that the millennial generation suffer from anxiety as much higher rate than any of the generations that preceded them. So uh, they said that they're the first generation to be raised with the Internet. They're the first generation to experience helicopter parenting. Uh, They're constantly exposed to social media. Uh, They're not the first generation to experience a rough economy, but they certainly act like they are. And uh, she goes on to say that a lot's been written about how delicate and tender the millennials are. Uh, but she says sometimes they're absurd. You know, she says they, they don't like to eat cereal because it's apparently too much cleanup involved. Too much cleanup, it's a bowl and a spoon, right? Anyway, um, she says uh, also marriages are happening later or not at all. Uh, as the family structure is changing, I'll say. Well, uh, yeah, I think uh, we got anxiety running amok. And instead of the drugs, you might want to check out some herbs. I personally like my my herb of choice if there's a bit of anxiousness or panic attack. Um, I like valerian root. Use it in a liquid. It works much better if you haven't tried it. and Use it in liquid. All right, moving along. Last but not least in the quack report. Uh, here's a here's a little report on bread, uh, fast food bread to be exact. You know the buns that they put the burgers on and the fried chicken patties and whatnot. Uh, they say that these uh, these foods from big foods 
you know, the fast food uh, companies, um, they put a lot of unhealthy ingredients in their in their breads to preserve the shelf life because that's their first concern is um, profitability, and the longer the stuff lasts, the better. So bread that lasts over 10 days or even two weeks is the goal for the big food companies. And in order to do that, you know it's got chemicals, right? So I don't know, just, just go take the bread test. Get, get a loaf of bread at the store. Put it on your kitchen counter and let it sit there. I bet you'd be there a month before you see any signs of mold. Um, but they said in order to achieve a lot of the long shelf life, um, they have to pump these uh, buns with artificial man-made chemical ingredients. And one of the common ingredients is called a dough conditioner. But what it really is, it's the chemical name is azodicarbonide, and that chemical is used to make yoga mats and shoe rubber. So dough conditioner has been linked to respiratory problems, allergies, asthma, according to the WHO. And when you heat the stuff, it breaks up into two compounds that have been associated with tumor development and cancer. So whatever you do, don't reheat that bun. And uh, bread sold in grocery stores or fast food chains are going to have dough conditioners. Other ingredients you might find inside this, I don't even know what you want to call it, bread, but it's artificial trans fats, bleached agents, caramel coloring, natural and artificial flavors. <laughs> just, uh, you know, get some real bread, just, you know, a couple of ingredients, maybe four, yeast, flour, water, you know, hey. Not a whole lot to go there, and you get some real bread. And that wraps the quack report. Thanks, Frank. Oh, I used to make my own bread all the time. And I would knead that dough, let it rise. I love the smell of fresh baked bread. Can't beat it. Ah. Oh tastes so good. I mean, your family scarfs it down. It doesn't last at all. You don't have to worry about it going stale. It's gone. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I love making bread. All right. Uh, right before, before we get to all the um, health info that we're going to impart unto you, liberating you and powering you, uh, we got a little clip by Red Skelton. Remember him? Those of you? Yes. Okay. Uh, so he he's telling us about uh, the Pledge of Allegiance. And we've played it before, but I think it's a nice thing to play every once in a while. Tell us, you know, our roots for who we are. Well, play it. But I had this one teacher. He was the principal of the Harrison School in Vincennes, Indiana. To me, this was the greatest teacher, a real sage of, uh, of my time, anyhow. He had such wisdom. And we were all reciting the Pledge of Allegiance one day. And he walked over, this little old teacher. Mr. Laswell was his name. <laughs> Mr. Laswell. And he says, uh... <laughs> I've been listening to you boys and girls recite the Pledge of Allegiance all semester, and it seems as though it's becoming monotonous to you. If I may, may I recite it and try to explain to you the meaning of each word? I, me, an individual, a committee of one, pledge. Dedicate all of my worldly goods to give without self-pity. Allegiance 
my love and my devotion to the flag, our standard, O oh glory, a symbol of freedom. Wherever she waves, there's respect, because your loyalty has given her a dignity that shouts freedom is everybody's job. United. That means that we have all come together. States. Individual communities that have united into 48 great states. 48 individual communities with pride and dignity and purpose. All divided with imaginary boundaries yet united to a common purpose. And that's love for country. And to the Republic. Republic. A state in which sovereign power is invested in representatives chosen by the people to govern. And government is the people. And it's from the people to the leaders. Not from the leaders to the people. For which it stands. One nation. One nation. Meaning so blessed by God. Indivisible capable of being divided with liberty, which is freedom, the right of power to live one's own life without threats, fear, or some sort of retaliation, and justice, the principle or qualities of dealing fairly with others, for all, for all, which means boys and girls. It's as much your country as it is mine. And now, boys and girls, let me hear you recite the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. One nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Since I was a small boy, two states have been added to our country, and two words have been added to the Pledge of Allegiance under God. Wouldn't it be a pity if someone said that is a prayer and that would be eliminated from schools too? Well, you know, uh, just listen to that. You can see how far we've slid. Yes? And, you know, if you read your Bible, um, country is referred to as mother in Scripture. So if you love your mother, and I know you guys out there do, it's about time we start showing how much we love this country and standing up for what God gave us, right? I think so. You know, without fear or harassment. But we have to come together. The divide is wide. But with God's help, he can stand in the gap and help us restore. He's a restorer. That's what he likes to do. Let's ask him for that. Don't forget. All right, we're going to talk about mental madness, your heavy metals, uh, how we can avoid that problem. Because... Uh, a lot of people say, are heavy metals, you know, is metal toxicity a real threat? People kind of, you know, doubt it's a problem. Well, you'd think 
that in our modern age, we, have, we would have learned how to avoid overloading our bodies with metals, and it would be extremely a rare thing, right? But in reality, we live in a time where metal poisoning is more likely to happen. So according to Dr. Joseph Mercola, metal poisoning is so common that everyone has some metal toxicity. So we're going to check this out and see what's happening and what we can do to protect ourselves. First, let's look at a few statistics. According to the National Organization for Rare Disorders, everyone is at risk of metal poisoning, and therefore it affects everyone. So the level of exposure may vary, but male, female, old, and young, we're all at risk. So how do we get poisoned? What are the ways that we get exposed to this? Well, again, the National Organization for Rare Disorders reports that in the United States, there are a number of reports on how people can get metal poisoning. So here's the major, but it's a list, but it's a brief list. There's many more ways, but we're going to just cover the, the, the big one. Okay. Uh, first up is cookware. Uh, it's very common for imported cookware entering the United States that has been improperly coated and it contaminates the food that you eat. Uh, the next one is water. Recently, we've you know, had several reports of lead in water supplies due to neglected municipal water systems not re being replaced. There are lead pipes. And 20 years ago, lead poisoning by water supply was practically unheard of in the United States. So prior to these reports, the likelihood of children being poisoned by lead in their water was relatively low, and that nationwide, 85% of the children had no harmful lead blood levels. Next up is food. Let's say let you, let you eat some fish on a regular basis, and it has exposed you to some metals, because the fish tend to have mercury. Uh, medical treatments, uh, if you have, um, you know, metal fillings, amalgam um, fillings, they call them, containing 50% mercury, it also has silver, tin, and copper there, and um, in small amounts, these metals are released into your mouth when it's under pressure, you know, when you chew, grind, or brush your teeth. Now, professionals that work in the dental industry are also exposed to these metals when working with them. So various medical devices or implants can also provide heavy metals. Also, vaccines uh, made the list uh, because most of them contain heavy metals, especially mercury. And some occupations can expose us to metal toxicity. People that work in agricultural or pharmaceutical fields are going to be exposed to the heavy metals as well as the dentistry, so forth. All right, let's talk about how the body reacts to this. According to science, if heavy metals build up in the body, they can do some major damage. Now, some people may not notice the subtle symptoms to a serious risk as this. And in a majority of the medical cases, the symptoms actually are going to be, probably be diagnosed as another disease altogether. So the best plan of protection to avoid, you know, metal toxicity is prevention. So, however, given our toxic environment, it can be harder these days to avoid um, toxicity than the previous generations. Well, let's take a look at this mercury. 
Uh, let's, let's examine one of the most common heavy metals that we encounter today, and that's mercury. Uh, you think that because it is such a threat to our health that it would not be used as much as it is. But it is a scientifically proven neurotoxin and therefore is toxic to your brain. But it's used in dentistry. You know, so why is mercury used in filling cavities? Well, we're told that it is a metal that binds well to the other metals together and is easily manipulated to fill the holes in teeth. Now, some may argue, well, why not just use gold? Well, certainly gold is less toxic. However, it's not as durable. So today, many dentists are not even using the amalgam fillings, and they've switched over to the ceramic substances instead. However, it requires more time to work with those substances, and they're not as long-lasting, not as durable. It's also estimated, get this, it's estimated that over 100 million Americans, that's 78% of the population, have algam fillings containing mercury. And interestingly, of those with these fillings, Dr. McCullough reports that 95% of them have medical disorders often affecting the central nervous system, such as MS, epilepsy, paralysis, migraines, etc. Now, studies on the amount of mercury vapor that emits from these fillings is about 10 times more than people who don't have those fillings. So I've often heard that these fillings kind of act like a battery in the mouth, and they emit these charges releasing these vapors, these mercury vapors. So apparently the vapor release cannot be avoided. So normal wear and tear, like chewing gum, brushing your teeth, drinking certain liquids, tend to release these vapors. Now, if you decide to replace these fillings, you want to do your homework and find a dentist that's experienced in removing the mercury fillings because you don't want to have the process done, especially when you're ill. So I would, I would wait until you're better. So if you um, do decide to remove your fillings, if, you know, if it were me and I wanted to remove mercury fillings, I would uh, boost up my immune system with immune-boosting herbs two weeks prior to my appointment and also take them afterward. And I'd also do the system organ cleanses immediately afterward to clear any toxicity that may have, you know, slipped by. All right, let's look at the vaccines, too, which tend to contain the thermosol, which is really 50% ethyl mercury by weight, and it's used as a preservative in vaccines. Uh, so we'd like to believe, you know, that the pharmaceutical industry has removed the mercury from all vaccines, but that's just not the case including the childhood vaccines. The mercury is still in the hepatitis B, the DPT, the tetanus, and the HIV. So a child's nervous system is pretty much still developing, and the use of mercury as a neurotoxin, not a good idea. This is a constant assault on the child's brain and nervous system. And the reason I say constant is because today, Children are to be given 59 doses of mercury-laced vaccines before the age of 6 and 69 doses before they're at the age of 18. So you think that mercury would not be in vaccines after the American Academy of Pediatrics and the CDC recommended it be removed. But then again, 
The FDA rejected corn syrup as detrimental to the pancreas in the early 1900s, yet it's in just about every prepackaged food now. So Dr. McCurla says that there are thermosol-free vaccines, but often the package inserts are not accurate to report what's actually in the vial. So you got to wonder there as well. So what is the lead risk? Let's look at lead. Well, more Americans are exposed to lead, and we're not just talking about lead-based paint. There's lead, leaded gasoline, lead batteries, petrochemicals like rubber has lead in it. And some industries have been working hard to remove the lead, such as in the paint, and also now the lead-free gas. So we need to be aware that our water sources, they, they shouldn't be near incinerators or toxic dumps, which can easily be contaminated with lead. And aluminum's on the list as well as a toxin. Uh, we are exposed to more aluminum than we think we are. And most people associate aluminum toxicity with Alzheimer's disease. However, too much aluminum can actually cause other conditions as well, such as osteoporosis, nervous conditions, anemia, headaches, liver or kidney failure, memory loss, and speech problems. So how are we most how are most people exposed to aluminum? Well, you can pick up too much aluminum using certain cooking utensils, aluminum foil, beverages and food cans, baking powder, antiperspirants, and acids, diarrhea drugs, anti-inflammatory medications, pain relievers, female dishing products, processed salt, and most of all, your refined food products. So science has noted that Alzheimer's patients have four times the amount of aluminum in their brain nerve cells. So how can you tell if you want to check to see if you're metal toxic? Well, if you want to check to see your level of metal poisoning, you can have a hair analysis done or check your blood pH to see if it has too much acid. If you have heavy metal toxicity, it makes you retain more sodium and could also push up your blood pressure. So metal toxicity is definitely one of those silent killers. So how much can you, how can you detox, I should say, these heavy metals? Well, there are some powerful herbs that can assist the body to purge the metals out of the body. So if you uh, were concerned about metal toxicity, you would do some of the system organ cleanses, and I would do all the way to the blood system. So we especially want to protect the heart, the liver, and the kidneys from these heavy metals. So a few research studies in the United States and Europe suggest that chlorella, which is a green algae, helps the human body break down the metal toxins of mercury, cadmium, and lead to cleanse the body of these metals, and it also strengthens the immune system as well. So how long it will take to purge all the heavy metals really depends on your level of toxicity. But on average, by the time a person has completed four cycles of cleansing, or in other words, has completed the major organ cleanses one after another, uh, one, one time every three months, so you do it once a season, in other words, uh, they have significantly reduced their risk of retaining those heavy metals. It is also going to be important to exercise prevention. You know, you don't want you want to avoid recontaminating your system, so you want to you want to do that. So, what about these cleanses? Well, it is a it is really important that when you do your cleansing, 
that you cleanse one organ at a time, unless you're, it's recommended otherwise. And you want to avoid overtaxing your system uh, with too much cleansing at one time, and you would reabsorb toxins in those cases. So for this reason, I would never do what is called a total system organ cleanse all at once. You always start with the bowel, you cleanse the bowel, and then you move to the urinary tract, the bladder, the kidney area. Next is the liver. And if you still have your gallbladder, you can cleanse the gallbladder with the liver because those organs work together to purge toxins. And then the blood system is last and is especially needed to remove a lot of mercury from the brain that may still be lingering there. So it's also going to be important to Refortify your system with nutrients that can also be drawn out during the cleansing process. So this is what you want to look for. You definitely want to look for, um, you'll find the certified organic herb cleanses for the major organs and the blood system at Apothecary Herbs. They have the chlorella ingredient in their body foundation food mix that you could do, use during your cleansing. To avoid the processed salt, that contains the aluminum, you might want to check out their Celtic sea salt, which has the 84 microminerals, and it is cardiovascular friendly. And check out the Crystalux natural deodorants there to avoid the aluminum in the sundry items. They also have immune-boosting herbs, digestive herbs, diarrhea herbs, pain and anti-inflammatory herbs, so you can skip all those drugs with aluminum. Give them a call toll-free to order or to get a free product catalog. The number is 866 229 3663-866-229-3663. If you're outside the U.S., 704-885-0277 or thepowerherbs.com. We'll be right back. The stars won't come out if they know that you're about. Could they couldn't match the glow of your eyes. And no. Just an ordinary guy Trying hard to win me first prize Oh, Candida We could make it together The further from here, girl, the better Where the air is fresh and life into the original medicine. Herbalist Wendy Wilson will be right back. The ancient Greeks thought thyme herb provided strength. Indeed, the chemical compounds of thyme contain antioxidants, an effective germicide that kills whooping cough bacteria and makes breathing easier. Just imagine what you can do with thyme herb when it comes to respiratory ailments like croup, pneumonia, asthma, and sinusitis. The extra benefit of thyme herb is that it soothes the nerves and stops spasmodic coughing, so you can get some rest. Who says you don't have time to take care of yourself? Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free for thyme tincture and tea to soothe your cough and get some rest. 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International 704-875-8010 or online at thepowerherbs.com. Leaping tall buildings with 
a single bound? Faster than a locomotive? Whoa! Find a Superman in you. Listen to Herb Talk Live with herbalist Wendy Wilson. PSA count high, half of all men over 50 have an enlarged prostate. You can shrink your prostate without harmful drugs or risky surgery. The secret to healing the prostate is to cleanse the prostate and the liver. Call Apothecary Herbs to ask about the Prostate Kit for a comprehensive way to heal and soothe your prostate. Educate yourself on how easy it can be to disinfect, cleanse, and restore your prostate gland. Call Apothecary Herbs for the Prostate Kit and successfully reduce swelling, inflammation, dissolve stones, and cleanse the blood to obtain the results you need. Money-back guarantee with every purchase. Call the experts in organ cleansing. Call Apothecary Herbs now for the Prostate Kit and empower yourself. Toll-free, 866-229-3663. For international callers, 704-875-8010. That's toll-free, 866-229-3663. Or visit the web at thepowerherbs.com. American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. Pandemics will be a part of our future. The question is, how do we protect ourselves? Are you willing to put your trust in an untested vaccine hoping it kills mutating viruses? Remember, in 1976, health officials tried to inoculate Americans with swine flu, and there was a 300% death rate in those inoculated, and millions were paid out in damages. God gave you a sophisticated immune system, and in times of need, you can make it 10 times stronger. So there's no need to panic. Just get prepared. Call Apothecary Herbs to order your upgraded pandemic kit. You will have eight professional strength formulas offering broad-spectrum immune-boosting protection. Take a stand, have a plan, have peace, and request your pandemic kit today. Or take your chances with the bad boys. Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free, 866-229-3663, or online, thepowerherbs.com. Mm-mm. That's kind of cool. 
All right. Uh, we're going to shift gears, and we're going to be talking about some cancer here in a little bit. But before we get to that, I have on my desk an announcement um, coming up, coming up real soon, this Thursday, the 24th. Uh, the folks at Apothecary Herbs, in honor of the Lord Jesus Christ, is uh, going to have a big sale, 20% off. Yep, orders of $75 or more when you use uh, their code, which will be on the homepage, which will be on the homepage soon, on thepowerherbs.com. Now, if you if you signed up for the newsletter, you got this information already today, okay? So you're going to be ready. And uh, so you, uh, the sale does expire on Monday the 28th, so you have a few days, you know, if you want to do your detoxing, you can save 20%. So very cool stuff. Thepowerherbs.com. All right, if you don't have Internet, you can also ask for the discount over the phone, so don't forget, you just give them a call at 866-229-3663. All right, we're going to talk about cancel laws for a minute. Um, some people may not be aware or believe that there's even a plan for global health care, and it's being used to uh, really take away a lot of our health care freedom. Now, a real big clue is when countries have similar laws, and in some instances are almost word for word. So countries which are thousands of miles from the United States are under the European Union's guidelines with regards to therapeutic products and treatment, yet Europe's laws seem to be influencing congressional laws in the United States. And one may suspect this is a very subtle way of incorporating the European Union's harmonization laws for global dominance. So one area of health that seems to be harmonized is with regards to cancer. So we're going to take a look and see where this is going and how this may impact our health care. Um, First of all, there's a lack of a guarantee because in allopathic modern medicine, you notice there's no guarantees with the treatment, no guarantee of success. So there are really no refunds either given in modern healthcare. And you would think that with all the clinical trials and the tests and the boasting of success and of the treatments that patients could expect some you know, form of re- restitution if the treatment fails, but however, That's never been the case in the occupation of modern medicine. Well, let's look at some articles, because for decades, pioneers in natural therapeutic approach to cancer really couldn't get their research published in the press or in any health journals. For research, if research was published, editors would choose the ones to publish, and a lot of times it was poor methods of testing, which you know, in which they neglected the dose range or um, uh, didn't establish a useful dose, okay? Usually publishers or editors would would go with those studies in lieu of some natural ones that actually work. So when mankind is really empowered with information from diverse sources and has, you know, and and all this information is readily available, it actually can help you me, all of us, with our health care decisions. So the cost of proving a therapy works, pretty enormous. If you want a treatment or therapy to be recognized as effective, you have to play the medicine uh, rules. You have to play by medicine's rules. According to Forbes magazine, the cost of a clinical trial can range from $1.3 billion and up. 
So regardless of the natural therapy working or not, if you don't have the money to prove that it, you know, by scientific methods, then you're not going to be taken seriously and you're not going to be able to share this knowledge relatively easily and you will be severely discouraged. So any unproven forms of therapy, especially for cancer, are labeled as pseudoscientific and science regards them as quackery. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wikipedia, some people don't like the source of Wikipedia, but they've listed alternative cancer treatments they say have typically not undergone proper, conducted, well-designed clinical trials, and as a result have not been published due to publication bias, uh, refusal to publish the results of a treatment outside the journal's focus area, guidelines, or approach, end of quote. Well, yeah, there could be publication bias. I agree with that part. So let's look at the uh, way that they treat uh, cancer with Mother Nature. Some of the new terms that patients are encountering in the healthcare are complementary or integrative medicine, and often these two areas are grouped in with alternative forms of healing arts. So who do you think initiated combining these practice terms as if they were the same thing? Well, apparently it was the White House Commission in 2002. A supposedly well-known researcher in complementary and alternative medicine, Dr. Barry Kazulf at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and according to her, there's this critical difference, though, between complementary medicine and alternative treatments. Complementary medicine is still scientific, she says. It's allopathic medicine, which may also use some natural forms of therapy. So in this area of medicine, it's said that the physicians use drugs as a last resort. So if using a complementary physician for treating cancer, the doctor will be basically a general practitioner, an MD, rather than an oncologist, you know, your, your cancer expert. And we're told that 60% of mainstream medicine patients are referred to complementary medicine doctors. And about 22 to 46% of cancer patients in the UK and Australia actually seek out complementary physicians. So in complementary medicine, the treatment for cancer can include what naturopaths and herbalists use, you know, diet changes, antioxidants, vitamins, and some, you know, anti-cancer type herbs. Hmm? So I can tell you the naturopaths and herbalists aren't going to be as expensive. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's look at some of the Cancer Act, you know, the laws. As I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of countries with similar laws with regards to healthcare treatment, especially in the area of cancer. Now, in 1939, the UK drafted the Cancer Act. So this act blocks patients from receiving unauthorized cancer treatments and information on unauthorized treatments. So they even can't even get an info. That's in the UK. So physicians in the UK are threatened with losing their professional standing on their medical register, which is equal to a US doctor losing their license to practice, if they step outside the boundaries using any treatments not approved of by the National Institutes of Health and Care Excellence. Now, in 1971, President Nixon and the U.S. Congress enacted the National Cancer Act, and one of the reasons it was created was to strengthen the position of the National Cancer Program and create a natural, nat, National Cancer Advisory Board. 
And of course, you know, taxpayers did pay for this at the tune of about $243 million a year. It is a huge program that dictates legal cancer treatments in the United States. And cancer research is presented to the president and Congress approves the funds paid for by taxpayers. So taxpayers pay again when these treatments are approved via Medicare and Medicaid. We keep paying, boy. The U.S. health authorities promote that we are winning the war on cancer. Their main reason is that statistics that they're publishing, they have gone down from one in five patients survive their cancer diagnosis by five years to one in three. So the average cancer patient survives just two years after medical treatments. I don't call that winning, really. Uh, The main difference in the UK Cancer Act and the US Cancer Act is that if you live in the UK, you have no access to information involving natural therapeutic alternatives to dealing with your cancer. So the Minister of Health in the UK prohibits any unauthorized person from communicating alternative therapies which reverse cancer. So there's this total ban on natural cancer cures in the UK unless prescribed by a licensed doctor. So authorities state that the ban is to, you know, prevent patients from being misled, you know, getting bogus cancer therapies. I understand that. However, that is an excuse because rational people don't accept all information without considering it to be relevant. You know, people research it out. They check it out. So there is this blackout on information which does not come from the scientific community. It does it meet the critical and expensive guidelines of clinical trials, and is it administered by authorized doctors and nurses? It sounds like, you know, if we can't make money on it, we're not going to let you have it. So this is a big problem for people overseas who don't want drugs or chemo or surgery to deal with their cancer if that's what their doctor is prescribing for them. So do you suppose that the U.S. could maybe, you know, adopt or amend their their cancer act and later prevent you, me, from getting information and some, you know, you know making our own decisions on how we want to conduct our treatment? You know, have choices. I would hope that Americans would abolish that thought, you know, and and not stand for that. Well, let's look at the human cost. So if there's a gag order regarding cancer information for the people of the UK concerning that, you know, their government may move to abolish uh, even the Human Rights Act of 1998. So the British feel their freedom of expression, their freedom of speech, and their fundamental rights are under attack. Well, they are. So what is going on in the UK is could easily happen in the US. So a strong advocate for making changes to the Human Rights Act in the UK is a career politician and a direct descendant from King William IV, who is David Cameron. So within the next year or so, he plans to motivate Parliament to replace the Human Rights Act with the British Bill of Rights. So the angle they're using is to cut ties with the European Court of Human Rights Uh, that is influencing so many of their laws right now. And so what is in the British Bill of Rights? That's the question that Brits want to know. Well, it's yet to be revealed to the Brits. They're kind of nervous about that. What could, you know, be in there? Could they lose even more rights? 
And they are worried that the new laws will impede their right to freedom of speech, freedom of expression, freedom to hold opinions, to receive and communicate ideas and information without government interference. So the British are worried that the rights being shoved down their throats, you know, protect health care and national security, will be used to cancel out their other rights, kind of similar to what you're seeing in other places, right? Well, if, um, if you want, you can check out the United Nations in Vienna uh, download. They have a publication download. Um, they're there. Uh, you'd be surprised some of the verbiage in there. They want to dictate uh, family life and things like that um, through environmental programs. It's always through a slide door, you know. So global laws for health kind of a stepping stone to global laws uh, for all national resources, for building codes, for general infrastructure, for your legal system, your economy, your education, your travel, everything. So this is how it's all, you know, being weaved together. Healthcare encompasses at least a third of a nation's economy. So your daily life as the United Nations states means your health because health is not a part of life, it is your life. So they want to regulate your life through their health plans. So the only way to monitor a large system is to incorporate a lot of electronic tracking, the RFID chips, the whole shebang. Um, you won't have access to services without certain, I guess, IDs, if you will. So I want you to consider this lovely technology everybody is just enamor enamored with but I think it's also kind of a trap, if you will. All right, so um, I think it's really time to for us to decide as Americans, you know, do we want to keep our health freedoms? Do we want to keep our free supplement market? You know, what are we willing to give up for somebody else to, I guess, monitor us? And do we really want to be monitored? I mean, I think the problem with healthcare is it's too expensive, and none of these programs, none of these new insurance programs, deal with the cost of healthcare. They kind of distract you that you know somebody else is paying for it, but somebody has to pay for it somewhere. It's not free; nothing's free. And so, I think that's the problem when we start to expect things for free and we don't take care of ourselves the way we should. Um, if you'd like to uh, check out the Power Herbs ebook, um, it's a good place to start to empower you, get your feet wet. If you're not used, if you haven't used herbs and you're not sure about them, there are 13 herbs in there that won't get you into trouble. Um, it's an ebook download. You can check it out at thepowerherbs.com and uh, click on Books and Newsletters tab, and you can uh, see it there. There's three different formats. There's PDF, iPad, and Kindle. So um, you can get this 400-page book, basically, uh, for $14.99 and uh, empower yourself. All right, we have a few minutes, so we're going to talk about longevity. Um, I I've talked about mortality rates, all types of diseases before. Um, you know, I, 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 I even looked at what caused a lot of diseases 200 years ago compared to today. And we're told that experts in the 1800s um, 
they only lived, you know, people, experts said people in the 1800s only lived to like 40 or 50 years of age. So we're told that, you know, hard work made our ancestors die young. So who is um, taking credit for humanity now living longer, you know, to be 70 or 80 years of age? Well, health experts are. The, the healthcare scientific medicine area, they say that their intervention of better medicines and treatments have played a role. Now, some say that it's because of better hygiene and nutrition. Others say it's because our ancestors may have died sooner. Uh, they may have traded years of a quality of life. You know, um, they may have, you know, just really lived a bold and useful life and then, you know, passed on at 60 or 50 years of age, whereas now if we're living to 80 years of age, is it really quality of life we have? So I was curious to see what all this looked like on paper. So I wanted to see what the cause of death 200 years ago really was. Uh, 200 years ago, a little sneeze or cough kind of raised a lot of concern for people you know, it's almost like you were a leper or you had the plague because respiratory diseases then were the number one killer in the 1800s. Tuberculosis killed one in four. And in the 1800s, this disease was comparable to, let's say, AIDS. So tuberculosis was really not deadly to those that had healthy immune systems and it prevented the disease from developing and growing. Also, malaria was a concern brought to the Americas in the 16th and 17th century Parasites were a big concern, but seemed to be more severe in countries like Africa and Arabia. So health researchers feel that a treatment to remove parasitical worms using a split stick inspired the caudaceous medical professional symbol with the staff and the snake. Plagues like smallpox and bubonic were another issue brought in by boatloads uh, of the immigrants from Europe. So notice, though, the leading causes of death 200 years ago were either viruses, bacterial, or parasitical infections. That's not the case today. Let's look at the cause of death now. So the leading cause of death today is pharmaceutical drugs, number one, you know, uh, overdoses, side effects, you name it, uh, drug interactions, you, you, the list is long. Um, number one is pharmaceutical drugs, heart diseases too, cancer, and diabetes. So deaths by viruses or bacteria don't even hold a match to the death statistics by prescription drugs. So they don't even compare to the deaths by war. So death by pharmaceutical has created a catchphrase called Farmageddon. <laughs> so are we living longer just to suffer longer? That's a question. So in a 30-year period from 1976 to 2006, 62 million Americans died, and their death certificate cited medications as the cause. And that was in the Journal of General Internal Medicine in 2010. According to the Baltimore Sun, they said seven of the ten top pharmaceutical drugs are used by 12th graders. Imbalance is now a disease needing allopathic treatment. An example is menopause, which is really not life-threatening, but the intervention by medicine will put you at risk of another disease like cancer and it will affect your longevity. 
One reason that we have so many deaths by modern medicine is because drugs are prescribed for so many symptoms and patients are taking more than one drug, which don't always interact well. So when you add in a drug, you get sometimes addictions. Maybe people are taking recreational drugs with that. Um, people are trading a relatively healthy life of 50 years for another 25 years of drug dependency with no cure, see. So many prescription drugs are made from substances that classify them as sedatives, tranquilizers, and poisons. And in many cases, prescribed medications suppress breathing and, drive the, uh, and deprive the body of oxygen. So people are either overdosing or poisoning themselves on medications. The pain and antidepressant medicines are at the top of the death certificate heap, so any drug that has a heavy therapeutic use will increase your risk of death by doctor. Uh, this is a quote by Jeffrey Coben. He's a professor of medicine, West Virginia University School of Medicine in Morgantown. He said many prescription drugs really are every bit as powerful, addictive, and dangerous as heroin. Yeah. So are we more advanced? I ask you. Uh, you have to ask that question. Is modern society more advanced when our ancestors with regards to the healing arts? Yeah, you know, I look at this as, you know, maybe a mother may I situation, one step forward, two back. Where medicine excels, I think, is in the field of trauma, you know, uh, where they need to stabilize somebody. Um, but they fail miserably, you know, with internal medicine disease. You know, prevention. They don't prevent anything. So I think it's time we all get smart. Uh, historical accounts by the thousands uh, where scientists can't even duplicate what some of our ancestors did to eradicate disease. And, of course, you know, if it doesn't really, you know, make them a ton of money, they don't want to anyway. So I think if people just... Yes, just take a breath. Think about it. Um, God doesn't expect you to, you know, live on pharmaceutical drugs to stay healthy. He would want you to be proactive and take care of that body he gave you. And uh, that's why herbs are empowering to a lot of people. They're bitter compounds with lots of power. They move blood. They move mucus. They have action. And they help the body balance and heal itself. That's the beauty of it. And you don't have to worry about interactions. I mean, I don't recommend mixing your herbs with prescription drugs, but I'm just saying herbs in themselves have very few you know, reactions unless you're naturally allergic to something. That's why I like them. They're very flexible, too, as far as dose. So check it out, thepowerherbs.com. Take the power back. I'm out of time. The information presented is not intended to diagnose, treat, prevent, or cure diseases. Seek medical advice if you dare from a licensed medical physician before using any product or therapy. And until next time, I'm your herbalist, Wendy Wilson, wishing you to be well.
I would like to tell you about the only truly natural dog and cat food I have found anywhere. Most all companies add a synthetic vitamin mineral pack to their dry or kibble food. Nature's logic is different. With all natural ingredients and nothing man-made added, their owner, Scott Freeman, worked for another pet food company but decided he wanted to do things right. So he started Nature's Logic. You can check them out at naturelogic.com. You will find online and local stores where you can find their products. I spent a lot of time trying to find an all-natural pet food, and Nature's Logic was the only one out there. Give your pets the best and check out naturelogic.com. Your pets will be glad you did. They also have many other natural pet products to try. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971 when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Alfred Adisk, and this is Financial Survival for two, uh, Wednesday night, uh, the 23rd of March, year of our Lord, 2016. Our guest this evening is James Corbett. He should be joining us after the first break. Should be here in about 20 minutes. In the meantime, I will report on what happened in the markets today and then pontificate on a number of other subjects dealing with the economy. Start with the markets. Gold is down $28.20 today, and another, another <laughs> adding insult to injury. In the overnight market, it's down another $2.60. So on the market right now, it's $12.18. Um, current price of gold, $12.18. It's been a bad day for gold. Uh, but it's bad for precious metals also. Silver is down $0.65. Cents. That's 4 Point one percent. Gold is down two point 
uh, two and a quarter percent. Silver's down 4.1% to $15.31 an ounce. Platinum's down 3.7%, uh, $37 down to 9.62. Palladium is down 3.8%. That's $23 down for palladium, 585 bucks for palladium. Bad day for precious metals. <clears throat> Dow Jones is down 80 points. 17,503. NASDAQ is down 53 points to 4,769. New York Stock Exchange is down 94, 95 points to 10,000, almost uh, 10,100. Uh, Standard and Poor's 500 down 13 points to 2,037. Crude oil was down a oh, buck and a half during the day today at another 17 cents in the overnight market and is currently priced $39.62 per barrel. The one, every one of the indicators that, I, that I'm looking at here that we routinely discuss, um, there are 13 indicators here at Kitco that I'm paying attention to. Every one of them is down except for the last one, and that's the U.S. dollar index. That was up about 41 points during the day, and it's up another 0.13 in the overnight market to 96.18. So today has been a happy dollar day, and it has been, oh, slightly bad for the equities, and, you know, bad. It's, it's been a bad day for, uh, for gold, silver, platinum, and palladium. <clears throat> Just to put this in a little bit of perspective, uh, so far this year, the price of gold has risen from $1,060 on January 1st to $1,220 today. If you had 100 ounces of gold at the beginning of the year, you would have made $16,000 on that 100 ounces. Uh, there are 83 days so far in the year. That works out to $193, you can just say $190 profit gain per day for the first 83 days of the year. If, in the likely event that we continued with that rate of uh, return on 100 ounces of gold for the balance of the year, 365 days, you'd come to the end of the year $70,000 ahead of where you were on January 1st. Now, I don't expect gold to continue. What we're dealing with here is gold had a spectacular January and February, and then the last in March hasn't been that. March has been flat or down for gold. So we can't expect that gold is going to continue to rise at an average rate comparable to what we've seen in the first 83 days of the year. But I am encouraged because after four years of difficult times in gold, we've just seen what gold can do. The first two months of the year, we've seen what gold can do. We don't know that it's going to continue, but we know that it can. And from my perspective, it is inevitable that we are still going to see some spectacular rises in gold. It could fall dramatically. It could yet fall dramatically, but it doesn't bother me on one level. You know, I would rather gold went up and then it went up some more and then it went up some more. 
But I'm not discouraged in the least bit. Gold has shown us in the first two months of the year what it's capable of doing, and I have no doubt that it's going to do it again and do it longer. Now, we'll see what happens. But uh, in any case, if you had 100 ounces of gold and gold kept on rising at the current rate, by the end of the year, you'd be ahead $70,000 on 100 ounces of gold. That's pretty remarkable. Um, Where am I? Let's go into, see what we've got here in the, uh, here's, here's an article I touched on during the day-to-day at the earlier program. Uh, there's a second financial crisis looming. That's headline from Real Money. Um, and they compared 2008 to today. And this is part of the reason why I remain absolutely bullish on gold. Gold is not a fluke, whether it goes up, whether it goes down. I don't care right now. Long-term trend has to be up, up, and spectacularly up. Is this going to happen immediately? Is it going to happen this year? Don't know. But the problems we are facing, despite we get some good news from time to time. We see things that are, we get reports that, that you know can lead us to take confidence in the economy. But overall, what we see for an economy is cause for pessimism, certainly for concern. For example, <clears throat> today the U.S. government debt, the official debt, totals about $19 trillion. All right. According to some sources, John Williams, Jettostats.com, he says it's actually closer to $100 trillion. Economist Lawrence Kotlikoff in the Congressional Budget Office have said that including unfunded liabilities, it's over $200 trillion. That's 10 times what they are officially reporting. I don't know who's telling the truth, but it's extremely unlikely that we're only, the U.S. national debt, it's extremely likely that it's only $19 trillion. But it is that much, for sure, which means it's $11 trillion more than it was in 2008. <laughs> now, that's money that's been injected into this economy or perhaps other economies in the world in order to try to avoid having a complete breakdown, a, a, a full-fledged economic depression. Uh, you have to ask yourself, the debt is $11 trillion more. It has more than doubled, according to these numbers. And again, this is from real money. More than doubled since 2008. There's no way you can look at that and say, oh, this is cause for, oh, we're, this thing's all under control. We got it. We got this. Don't worry about it. You know, it can't be. The debt is enormous. And sooner or later, it's going to bite us in the backside. The Fed's balance sheet is approaching $5 trillion versus $800 billion in 2008. Um, Fed's balance sheet has gone deeper, six times deeper in debt than it was in 2008. <clears throat> That's a powerful and important number um, because from my perspective, it indicates that the Federal Reserve is no longer capable of stimulating the economy the way it did from 2008 on up until a year and a half ago when they closed down quantitative easing. Um, I don't think they closed quantitative easing because the economy was strong and it was on track. I think they closed it because the Fed had dug uh, a hole that was so deep 
The Fed was concerned whether it would ever get out of it again. It is too much in debt, right? It has too much debt in its balance sheet to be to safely engage in more quantitative easing, in my opinion. Right? It may be that they're going to try some more, but I don't think they can. And if they can't, that means that if we have another significant financial event of the sort that we saw when Lehman Brothers uh, collapsed and so on and subprime mortgage rates all of a sudden created big problems back in 2007, 2008. <clears throat> We're going to see another economic debacle and there's going to be nobody to re- there, there will be no one to rescue us. Hmm? Here's another item. Short-term interest rates are a quarter of a percent compared to four and a half percent back in 2008. That translates into about one-eighteenth of the interest rates are about one-eighteenth of what they were eight years ago. How do banks make money at that rate? With the interest rates reduced so much, banks have to be under enormous stress, and they are. Um, they're not going to be. They are, they are vulnerable simply because they don't have enough capital to hold their hold themselves together in the event of a serious problem. With interest rates at near record lows, there's little opportunity for the Fed to further expand its balance sheet. This is, again, that's a statement from real money, and it's consistent with an opinion I've I've had for at least a month, maybe two months, I don't recall clearly. But again, I don't think the Fed can step in to save us. And here's real money says, with interest rates at near record lows, there's little opportunity for the Fed to further expand its balance sheet. Expanding its balance sheet ultimately means creating more money in order to give to the government for the government to disperse uh, into the economy and allegedly stimulate us out of a collapse. Fed can't help us. The derivatives market is currently larger than $500 trillion uh, versus $180 trillion in 2008. Again, this is not part of the national debt. National debt is allegedly $19 trillion. The derivative market is $500 trillion, and that's here in the United States. I think it's bigger than that around. I think the global is much larger. But the point is you compare $500 trillion in domestic derivatives to $19 trillion federal debt, and you have to conclude, you know, there's a lot of debt out there. If anything happens where the debt has to be repaid and Whoever is backing these derivatives are, well, we'll need $500 trillion from you. Can we expect a check in the mail tomorrow? And the answer is uh, no, probably not. Maybe this weekend or maybe next month or maybe next year or maybe never. Nobody's got $500 trillion. And yet somebody is holding $500 trillion in debt instruments, also known as derivatives. If that goes south, no, no one even, I don't think anyone can imagine what kind of chaos might follow. Nobody knows what's going to happen. <clears throat> this is equivalent to me signing an IOU for $500 quadrillion. And the world sits back and says, oh, we've got a note here signed by Al for $500 quadrillion. 
and they go ahead and lend on it and borrow with it, and and they go through all sorts of financial shenanigans without bothering to recognize there's no way in this life that I will ever be able to make good on a $500 quadrillion debt. And yet the world economies march forward as if some of these debt instruments, well, sure, they can pay that. No, they won't. They're not going to pay the national debt. If push comes to shove and someone has to make a call on these derivatives, they're not going to pay that either, at least not in full or even substantially. All of this, you know, it's just more evidence that we are facing some significant trouble. The size of the subprime mortgage bubble was $1.3 trillion back in 2008, but the size of sovereign borrowing is $7 trillion today. <clears throat> this is a really interesting point to me because they are comparing, real money is implicitly comparing the government debt government borrowing of $7 trillion today, they are comparing this to subprime mortgage borrowing back in 2006, 2007, and on to 2008. And by implication, they're saying the government of the United States and others are subprime borrowers. Now, they didn't come right out and say that, but that's the implication of their comparison. And I think that implication is correct. You know, near zero interest rates uh, that we have right now, well, I won't even, I'm not even going to get into that. Well, for, the, point, the point is that our government is so deeply in debt that it will ne- never be able to repay the existing debt. They're not going to be able to pay all of the $19 trillion they, they admit to owing. And they certainly won't pay the $100 trillion that John Williams thinks they owe or the $200 trillion that the Congressional Budget Office and economist Lawrence Kotlikoff have claimed they owe. It's not going to be paid. All right? That is the same sort of insolvency that we saw in the subprime borrowers back in the year in 2005, 6, 7, 8. Huh? They can't pay the bill. The consequences very nearly of the subprime mortgage problem in in 2007 it very nearly toppled the whole world economy it's not unreasonable to suppose that the subprime borrowing problem we see among sovereigns today seven trillion dollars it's six times the size of the problem we had with subprime mortgages back eight years ago nine years ago you can't look at that and sit back and say, well, the world is, the economy is strong, everything, we're in the, we are in or near a recovery and everything's going to be happy. I don't think that's the way it's going to work out. We see too many problems. Yeah, we see the silver lining once in a while. There's one around here. We can see them and point them out, one thing or another. But where we are is caught in circumstances that are so enormous that it seems almost inevitable that we're going to see some sort of a global and or national monetary collapse, economic collapse. And when we do, 
the big problem will be that all of these debt instruments, which are nothing but promises to pay, that's what a debt instrument is, promise, a promise to pay the $1,000 next week, next month, next year. Most of them can't be paid. Most of the promises will be broken. And those of you that are waiting on those promises to be filled or fulfilled with your pension funds and bank accounts and stocks and bonds and whatever, you're going to find yourself losing most of your wealth, most of the wealth of you tied up in paper, in my opinion. And the way out of that is you get yourself some gold, you get yourself some silver. All right, among other things, get something tangible. Guns, land, bullets, food, water, something tangible. Tools, all right, gold and silver. We're going to take a break for some commercials. I'll be back in about two and a half minutes with James Corbett, scheduled to be our guest from the Corbett Report. Please stay tuned. We'll be right back. Financial obligations or relationship problems have you feeling stressed out? When life is too much to handle, use Apothecary Herbs Emotional Stress Formula. Feel calm and more in control with herbs especially combined to provide the organic nutrition your system needs to help you cope. Complete instructions for maximum benefit and a money-back guarantee. You've waited long enough. Call Apothecary Herbs now. Toll free 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3w.thepowerherbs.com. Since the beginning of the United States, kings have sought it, nations have fought for it, It has been traded, borrowed, purchased, and stolen. There is a reason for it. To secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, invest with the security of gold and silver. Call Discount Gold and Silver Trading at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Listen to Financial Survival with your host, Melody Cedarstrom, on American Voice Radio Network and Shortwave Radio. Visit DiscountGoldAndSilverTrading.net or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. For the very best in gold and silver trading, call toll-free 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Call now. American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. (laughs) 
folks, I'm Alfred Adisk, and this is Financial Survival, brought to you by Discount Gold and Silver at 1-800-375-4188. My guest is James Corbett, C-O-R-B-E-T-T, from the Corbett Report. James is here as usual, regular guest, to give us some insight into global economics, global politics, and James is... uh, He's in Japan. He lives in Japan, and uh, always, always interesting information. So, on. how are you doing, James? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing over there? Can't complain. Uh, living, just living the dream. You understand? Uh, um, what do you know about the concept of buyback blackout? Is that something you're familiar with? It's not ringing your bell to me. Can you? Let me give me you a little description. See what you have to say about it. This is from an article and Bloomberg that just came out in the last day or two. And the headline is, Buyback Blackout Leaves U.S. Stocks on Own Prior to Earnings. All right? Nobody could figure anything. That's like code. But here's here's some of the text. It says, last week, U.S. stocks entered part of the year when one of their biggest support systems is turned off. That support had been provided by U.S. corporations buying back their own stocks in order to enhance their earnings per share numbers. They're coming up to a quarterly report in five weeks, and they are trying, they have been trying to, by purchasing their own stock, there's less stock out there. Uh, You divide the earnings by a reduced stock number of shares, and it shows up that you're making more per share than was the case when the investors were there. Buybacks, which reached a monthly record in February, have surged so much, they make up about 2% of the daily volume, at least up until the end of the, at least up until the buyback blackout. They are customarily suspended during the five weeks before companies report quarterly reports, quarterly results. Some believe that without the corporations able to buy back their own stocks, The prices of those stocks will fall. The market indices will fall. And therefore, the next five weeks of the buyback blackout could trigger a significant decline in stock prices. Does that strike you as significant, uh, improbable, much ado about nothing? What do you think? Well, actually, yes. Okay. So now that I'm just looking this up, there is something to this because yeah. uh, they, there's a chart up on marketwatch.com showing the S&P 500 buyback index, looking specifically mm-hmm. at stocks that have been repurchased by companies uh, to be doing 5% better uh, than the uh, SPX itself, the, uh, the S&P 500 index itself is since the February lows. So in fact, the surge that we've seen since that February low has been apparently driven by these buybacks. So, and that is significant because again, what does it ultimately indicate about the performance of the the stock market that we're told is the bellwether of the economy? Although we, I think uh, your listeners probably know by now that's not true. It shows that even that is built on uh, a lot of, you know, a good goodwill, hope and change philium that uh, the, the markets have been used to for the last eight or nine years now, because it is. It's the, the companies plowing their own revenue streams back into buying their own shares to artificially inflate earnings. And, <clears throat> and one has to wonder if it's their corporate bond revenue streams that they're diverting to that, because, of course, it's been, 
you know, heyday for uh, corporations issuing bonds in recent years as uh, people have been flocking out of treasuries and into bonds to look for anything with a return. So corporations have been able to basically create their own mint uh, with bonds lately. I wonder if they're just plowing that back into buying their own shares and making it look like a virtuous circle. Well, they're up to something. Um, You look at it and it's just one more leaf in the breeze that tells us that the system is fragile contrived. There's also implications in this. According to one report from Phoenix Capital Research, they're saying the main buyer, they're alleging that the main buyer has been the corporations themselves. The main buyer of stocks has been the major corporations themselves. And they're saying they're stepping out of the picture for the next five weeks, and they're anticipating that there could be some adverse consequences. And they're not talking about just 5%. Um, it may be accurate that five percent, the price is 5% higher, but they're implying that the volume is over half right, of, right. What's, of, uh, of what's, uh, the sales are, uh, at least half of them have been. Right, right, right. The 5% yeah. was, the, was the S&P 500 buyback index outperforming uh-huh. the S&P 500 index by 5%. Uh-huh. But that's, yeah, it could be 50% by volume. Yeah, I know. So it's one of those things that's, you know, what a complex web we weave when first we practice to deceive. The corporations have woven a pretty complex web here, but now they're, you know, they're at this buyback blackout and you have to wonder, does this bode, is this going, are we going to get through it without any problem? Or are we going to see a significant problem? Do you have an opinion? Time will tell, but it certainly looks like a pretty tenuous situation for a lot of uh, companies that are in this predicament. Uh, Monsanto has just entered their their blackout a few weeks ago, and Mm -hmm. so far their year-to-date performance is down 7%. Uh, They're going to Mm -hmm. report their earnings on April 6th. Uh, United Rentals, Ameriprise, Express Scripts Holdings, AIG, Moody's, 21st Century Fox are all in in or about to enter their blackout period, and all of them, except for Fox, is down on the year. So that's, uh, it may already be having an effect. Mm-hmm. And we'll watch and see. There's a month left uh, to see without corporate support. If it's 7% down already, what will it be after a week? If it's down 7%, what will it be after five weeks? We'll watch and see, and it might be fine. I don't know. Who knows what's going to happen here, but... Another one of those leaves in the breeze. Here's another leaf coming out of Europe. This is uh, Michael Snyder. And he says, the collapse of Italy's banks threatens to plunge the European financial system into chaos. Now, this is about two weeks ago he wrote this report. But he says, as Italy's banks begin to go down like dominoes, it's going to set off financial panic all over Europe, unlike anything we've seen before. Italian banking systems have declined by a whopping 28%. The problem in Italy appears to be significantly accelerating. What makes Italy so important? It's the eighth largest economy in the world. Italian banks are absolutely drowning in non-performing loans. And as uh, Jeffrey Morris noted, this potentially represents the greatest threat to the world's already burdened financial system. Is Italy that big or is this more hype? Um, maybe neither. Uh, it, okay. Italy is Italy isn't that big on the big scheme of things, but it um, you know they talk about dominoes effects and things. But I think it's just actually more of a symptom of something that's happening largely in the European banking sector um, that that may be coming to a head in Italy right now. But I think it's happening elsewhere. And there's a report up on WolfStreet.com 
Italy's banking crisis spirals elegantly out of control that notes that uh, the Eurozone's third largest economy, Italy, is in full-blown banking crisis. Four small banks were rescued late last year, and the big ones are teetering. Their stocks have already crashed. So the numbers officially cost around 201 billion euro, and other numbers uh, estimate as many as 300 billion euro, or 18% of total outstanding loans are in trouble. And uh, that's, I mean, that's a huge problem for Italy, but obviously for the Eurozone generally. And again, we've seen this playing out in the European stock indexes, uh, specifically in the financial stock indexes in the last few months with uh, the banking stocks bringing down the Euro stocks generally. And I think, again, this is just a symptom of a larger problem. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know about domino theories or what have you, but I think at any rate, as a symptom of what's happening in the Eurozone, it's it's definitely up there in, in terms of importance. What about domino theories? I mean, we've been listening to domino theories, and I, I've advocated them to some degree. I've certainly believed them. I still do. But the dominoes have been remarkably stable over the past several years. A lot of us have looked at this and thought this, this whole thing should have blown up years ago. And yet something seems to be holding the dominoes upright. Are, is this, are the dominoes refusing to fall just by dumb luck? Or are there people in control that are able to hold the dominoes up? I think the real answer is that there are millions of possible paths for these dominoes to fall through. And so Mm -hmm. people can speculate on this path or that path and keep their eyes on those indicators, whereas the real action may be happening elsewhere. And I think we see this every time there is an actual bubble pop or an actual collapse, like with the Lehman collapse. When you look at that, in hindsight, you recognize the dominoes that were falling in front of it. You know, you notice the, uh, the Bear Stearns and all of those warnings and flashing indicators that had been going on for years in the housing market that ultimately led to Lehman. But uh, you don't necessarily see that while it's happening. And if you do, well, you're, you know, you might uh, stand to profit from it in a big way, like the, those people in the big short, uh, the, the movie that just came out talking about the, the investors who saw those dominoes collapsing. Uh, I think in this case as well, I mean, it, there's no doubt that Euro, the Eurozone is in serious, deep trouble. But the question, I mean, the question for traders and people who have that in mind is, okay, well, which way is it going to fall? What's going to fall first and where is it going to fall first? Because if you have that kind of insight, of course, there's always a way to profit from it, even in the wake of collapse or in the midst of collapse. Uh, As collapse is going, it's actually more profitable if you can see which way. As I say, there's millions of different ways that the dominoes could fall, though. Could it start in Italy banking sector and spread out from there? Could it be related to Greece and the shenanigans going on there? Could it be something, uh, you know, a kind of black swan event? And if you uh, if you can predict that, there's, you know, as I say, there's lots of money to be made if that's your end goal. What's more important? I mean, what we're talking about here is that the dominoes, when they do start clicking, they're pretty much invisible up until the time when they start to fall. We have confidence in the system, and we sit back and say, oh, the domino theory, that's not going to work. That Don't have to worry about that. We've got everything under control. The dominoes are kind of invisible to us until something like Lehman Brothers happens, and then all of a sudden we say, oh, my gosh. Um, well, so long as we don't believe in dominoes, are the dominoes real? I mean, if a domino falls in the forest and nobody hears it, did it make a sound? You know what I'm getting here? This has a lot to do with public confidence, whether we perceive the dominoes or not. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. No, it really does have a lot to do with that in the exact same way as the housing bubble. I mean, can you imagine if people were listening to people like Peter Schiff back in 2005, 2006, who were saying, this is a bubble, it's going to pop, this, this, the prices don't deserve to be where they are. Instead of laughing at them, if people had paid attention to him and taken yeah. a look at the analysis and agreed with it, then the bubble wouldn't have inflated as much as it did over the, the, the next couple of years when people still continued to pile on. In the same way, I mean, there are people talking about, you know, the collapse of the Eurozone and the Euro European banking sector who are being laughed at. And if, you know, a year or two from now, they turn out to be right, there will be millions, hundreds of tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of people who wished they would have been listening to those uh, those calls beforehand. So it's always a question of perspective and what people understand about what's happening. And I don't think the dominoes are necessarily invisible if you're looking at them and looking at them for what they are in the same way the housing bubble was perfectly visible to anyone who really wanted to look at it. But there were a lot of people whose very livelihoods and the fortunes that they were making depended on them not recognizing that. And uh, as they say, you know, you, you can't make someone recognize something that their, their livelihood depends on them not recognizing. When we talk about recognizing the dominoes, is this a function of perception and intelligence? Or is it primarily a function of courage? Does it take intelligence to see the dominoes, or does it take courage to say, I see that, that thing's going to fall over? Which is more important, the courage? Because a lot of people, from my perspective, they don't, it's not that they don't see things. They see the evidence, and yet they don't have the courage to accept the evidence. They just say, no, no, that can't be, that can't be. Mm -hmm. You follow what I'm saying? I do. I, I think fundamentally what drives most people, um, maybe not people who are in this game, have skin in the game, traders and, and those types of people who are intimately involved in it, but most people are just, in this case, kind of driven by their own sense of uh, their their perception of their own risk in, in the game. It, mm -hmm. Is this going to affect me? If so, how? When? And if they don't see an imminent threat to themselves, then they're probably not going to pay a lot of attention to it. And so they're not I, looking I over the can, horizon. Exactly. I don't know if you can necessarily fault people for that yeah, because there are a million things you could be paying attention to right now. Why pay attention to this rather than that? It is a difficult thing, and most people just want to come home after a long day of work and crack open a beer and watch a football game. I understand that mentality, and I'm not necessarily putting those people down because why should it be incumbent on them to worry about what's happening in the European banking sector or all these types of things? It wouldn't matter if our lives weren't as completely centralized and becoming more centralized as they are now with uh, more and more power, financial power and political power being centralized in places like Brussels, which has nothing to do with the lives of the average person, you know, living their life in Rome or Florence or wherever else. But, but for some reason, they're, they're politically wedded because uh, the people behind the scenes have been creating this web for them to catch them in. What do you make of the bombing in Brussels? Do you think it has political implications relative to the new world order or is brussels just happened to be convenient for the terrorists well it, it will have political implications i mean I, I we're going to start seeing in the in the coming weeks we're going to see the next stage of the rollout of the next uh, crackdown on uh, security at airports i mean that's going to roll out over the western world and there's going to be new procedures going in and who knows what kind of you know new mandatory screenings and tests and scanners and all of that stuff. So that will be rolling out as a direct consequence of this. And I think there will be, assuming this will be blamed as it seems like it's going to be on 
the Islamic State, there will be some sort of ramifications in terms of Syria and what's going on there and perhaps the ending of the peace talks, which I think is interesting because of some interesting warnings that Erdogan made a few days ago that maybe we can talk about after the break. All right. We will talk. Oh, yeah. He he reported that uh, he warned them that at least one of these guys that were letting into Brussels was a terrorist, was known to be a terrorist. We'll talk about that in a moment when we return to financial survival. I'm Alfred Addis here with my guest, James Corbett. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Please stay tuned. condition and emergency rooms and medical doctors are not an option, you need our emergency heart attack kit. Five concentrated liquid formulas enter the system in 60 seconds to protect your heart muscle, strengthen heartbeat, increase circulation, relieve pain, and make breathing easier. When seconds count, you want all the help you can get with our emergency heart attack kit. Easy to use and portable in a one-pound compact kit for your purse, briefcase, or car. Call Apothecary Herbs now for your emergency heart attack kit, toll-free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the three www.thepowerherbs.com. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971 when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. I'm Alfred Addis. This is Financial Survival, and our guest is James Corbett from the Corbett Report, C-O-R-B-E-T-T, report.com. Go ahead and visit for some insights into global economics, global politics. James, you wanted to talk something. You wanted to say something about Turkish President Erdogan's warnings relative to the recent terrorism attack. Is that right? That's right. Uh, and you mentioned that the fact that one of the, the bombers came from, was deported from Turkey. But just four days before the attack, Erdogan 
had specifically said at a commemoration ceremony for the 101st anniversary of the Battle of Gallipoli, um, he said specifically, there is no reason why the bomb that exploded in Ankara, referring to the recent bombing in Turkey, cannot explode in Brussels in any other European city. The snakes you are sleeping with can bite you any time, talking about the idea of he was really referring to Kurdish militants and those, you know, those, those, those dastardly terrorists. But I think the, the warning seems particularly apt that four days later, of course, it was Brussels specifically that was hit. And as you say, it was Ibrahim al-Bakrawi, who has been identified as one of these, these bombers, who was specifically deported from Turkey in 2015, with a warning from Turkey to Belgian authorities that, you know, this guy's dangerous and he might attack. So this guy was known about beforehand. And uh, it's interesting that this comes just days after Erdogan's warning, because this factors, I think, deeply into Turkey's role in what's happening in Syria, because Turkey, of course, has been intimately involved in helping fostering the terrorist insurgency in Syria since the beginning for a number of reasons, uh, destabilizing Assad's government and, uh, and gaining regional power. But it has awakened the and and incited the Kurdish militants within Turkey. And now that that's the idea of a Kurdish homeland being carved out of Syria as part of the peace talks has, I think, put the fear of <laughs> the fear of God, the, the fear into uh, Erdogan and Turkey that uh, this this peace process might not be going in a good way for Turkey. So what's the best thing that could happen for Turkey? More military intervention in Syria, more renewed cries. We got to get more boots on the ground. We got to get more, you know, chaos going. We can't allow these militants to get any ground, including, oh, by the way, the Kurds. So it, it works out very well for Turkey potentially, depending, you know, how the the narrative plays out in the next few days. When you say it works out very well for Turkey, do you mean the by it? Do you mean the bombings in Brussels? And are you uh, yes, implying I mean, uh, that Turkey uh, may have a, played a role in causing those bombings? It's I, I leave it as a possibility on the table. I think all the possibilities are there right now, and I don't know if it necessarily means that Turkey was was puppeting these these uh, these people uh, to do this. But certainly, I mean, the warning is, is particularly prescient, and the fact that it the reaction could very well directly benefit Turkey, which is, as I say, deathly afraid of this idea of a Kurdish homeland being carved out right on the border, which would obviously incite the Kurdish uh, Kurdish factions within Turkey itself to further agitate for their own homeland and carving out part of Tur- Turkey's territory, which has been, I mean, that's one of the major fights that Turkey's engaged in right now. And one of the things that they're engaged in in Syria is not attacking Islamic State or anyone else, but attacking the Kurds. So again, depending how this reaction plays out, and we know that Turkish officials have been caught on tape. I've played the tapes on my podcast before. Um, actually plotting to do a false flag event in Syria to try to involve NATO in Syria, to try to kick in the, 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 um, the article, was it Article 4 or Article 5, the, self def- uh, the collective self-defense clause of NATO, which would necessitate NATO stepping in to save Turkey from this attack from Syria. We know they've been caught on tape plotting to stage such an attack before, so it's not out of the realm of possibility that what happened in Brussels could be being directed from Ankara. Did Turkey's president go to the same uh, grade school and college as the premier of North Korea? <laughs> I, it, it probably it seems like they're both they're both they're both 
eager to cause trouble given the opportunity. They like to stir the pot, it seems like. I don't know if that's a misapprehension, you know, if I'm misunderstanding, but it does look like they're very similar. I don't, of course, I don't seriously believe they went to the same schools, but it's interesting. Yeah. Here's one of the things that saying. crosses my mind. Is a police well, Turkey state... has been really important in the in the war on terror in ways that people probably don't realize, and it's been a it's been a haven and a hub for the fostering of terror uh, across uh, state lines in in Central Asia, in the Middle East, and um, perhaps potentially in Europe. And I, so I think people should start looking into that history. I've got a. I'm wondering if a police state is inevitable in a complex, advanced society. And the reason I wonder that is because it seems to me that a complex economy is far more vulnerable than a, than a simple economy, a, 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 a less advanced uh, economy. And what I mean by that metaphor, you take your sundial, it's a, it can be made out of a slab of concrete with a with something like a triangle located at one point. You, and you set it up where it points due north, part of it points due north, and you make a few marks on it. And it'll keep time for you for centuries. You can leave it out in the sun and the rain and the wind and the snow and the ice and the rest of that sort of thing. And if it falls over, you just set it back up and line it up correctly, and it'll keep time. Now, it doesn't keep it very accurately. It's not very efficient, and it doesn't work at all during the night, but it works. No batteries, no moving parts. Simple. You take a Swiss chronometer that'll keep exquisitely perfect time. And it's got wheels and gears and springs and the rest of that sort of thing. If you give that Swiss chronometer a little wrap with a little hammer, you can finish it off. Its efficiency, it is so efficient that it becomes increasingly vulnerable. All right? And to me, a complex advanced economy is much the same because we have power lines that cross continents. And they can't be defended every step of the way, every foot, uh, every lineal foot. We have all sorts of infrastructure that has critical vulnerabilities, and it opens the door for just a handful of people to come in and focus an attack on a particular small vulnerable spot that can't be defended just because you can't defend it all. And all of a sudden, they can shut down a big chunk of that economy, at least temporarily, and maybe you know, maybe for a considerable period of time. What I'm getting to is this: if my analogy is correct, if there, if the comparison between the simple economy and the complex economy corresponds to the to the uh, uh, the, the I can't even think now. I'm losing my marbles here. Um, the sundial and the Swiss chronometer. If that corresponds, do we have a choice other than to accept a police state that will try to watch everybody in order to keep just a handful of crazy people out? Right. I get what you're saying, and it certainly does pertain to the physical infrastructure that we have these days. And I think the obvious example would be pipeline infrastructure, extremely important energy uh, infrastructure that is being laid and has been laid and is extremely uh, vulnerable uh, to to sabotage. Because, as you say, miles and miles, hundreds, sometimes thousands of miles that cannot be defended at every single square inch. So 
absolutely that type of physical infrastructure exists and multiply that by all of the electronic cyber infrastructure that now exists that is yeah. equally, I think, vulnerable to all sorts of attacks and hasn't really played into these types of situations too much yet. But I guarantee you in the coming years, the, the idea of cyber terrorism is going to be more and more um, played on. And the so the question is, does this mean that there is just going to be a police state because you can't police it all, so you better police everyone. And now we have the surveillance technologies that could potentially do that. I think there is a logic to that, and that is the logic that is being played out right now. And we're going to see that, for example, as I say, in the wake of this Brussels bombing, we're going to see the the new um, procedures and scanners and all of that being rolled out at airports worldwide. So the, every time there's an event, there's a reaction to the event. Is what will it necessarily be the, the response? And I would say no, because... Uh, Again, it it is a matter of perception. It is a matter of perspective. Uh, Facing down, you know, for whatever the Soviet uh, Cold War threat was really about, facing down this, you know, nuclear armed nation that could have completely obliterated the United States and wiped it off the face of the map in in a matter of minutes or hours uh, versus, you know, this amorphous terror threat of people with bombs that might kill 30 people at a time, tragic as it is is not the existential threat that it that was faced before without the need for that kind of police state. In fact, at that time, the rhetoric at any rate was all about freedom and we, we live free and this is our victory over those damn Ruskies. But now the terrorists, you know, stage a few bombings and people are already willing and, and to throw away their, their remaining liberties. So I don't think it's necessarily the answer, but it is the logic of all state bureaucracies. That's the way they are set up to operate. That is the way they will respond to these attacks. And unless a big giant wrench is thrown into those works to stop them from, from going, uh, we know where this script leads. You mentioned the impact on air travel. They're going to have more rigorous security checks. Is that going to slow, is it going to dissuade a lot of people or a significant number of people from engaging in air travel and say, I'm tired, I don't want to be groped anymore, I don't want to be x-rayed anymore, I'll take a train or I'll stay at home. Will the, will the airlines suffer a revenue loss because of the new and improved security systems? Yes, in the short term. In the long term, perhaps the, the plan is to, uh, to further implement those types of things that we've seen coming online in recent years where you can be pre-approved and pre-screened and you can ro- breeze through the lineups because you're a VIP, because you've, you've been pre-approved by the proper channels and you have whatever chip or card or whatever. Uh, I think that's going to be the, the push eventually because this will uh, obviously uh, dissuade you know, people just from going on holiday trips and that, that type of thing. They don't want to put up with it. And uh, and so the, the airlines and a lot of people, the tra- tourist industries are going to be calling out for, well, we need some sort of solution. What's the solution? Well, as long as you're pre-approved, as long as you, you know, give up these details to the government about your travel plans, then you can be pre-approved. So that's coming. And I'm already seeing that, in fact, in, in Japan. Uh, there's new procedures coming in that I didn't even know about until I recently had to renew my Canadian passport. And they're telling me that now my son 
uh, born in Japan, Japanese citizen, but also can be a Canadian dual citizen until he's 18, uh, can't travel into Canada without um, a Canadian passport now because he isn't eligible for this special program they're doing for foreigners and blah, blah, blah. There's, there's new procedures going in all the time that's making it harder and harder for people to even just travel with their families. So it's, uh, it's getting to be kind of crazy out there, and it's, I'm sure it's only going to increase from here. I understand. We, you know, again, we live in interesting times. Here's Alan Greenspan. He was interviewed on Bloomberg TV and radio, and during the course of the interview, he was asked about the state of the U.S. global economy and global economies, and he said we're in trouble basically because productivity is dead in the water. And he went on to say he hasn't been optimistic for quite a while. He won't be optimistic until he says I won't be optimistic until we can resolve the entitlement programs. Nobody wants to touch it, and that is gradually crowding out capital investment, and that's crowding out productivity, and it's crowding out standards of living. Where do you want me to go from there? Alan Greenspan is saying that the entitlement program in this country is too large to allow us to become, once again, become productive. Do you agree with that? Do you see this as a significant, is this a is this a significant step in the way people view entitlements? Do they have to be shut down or diminished, or can they be continued? Well, I mean, mathematically, they do at some point, because there is not and will not be enough money to pay for them. Uh, there are unfunded liabilities to the tunes of however many trillions, depending on which way you add it up, that the U.S. government does not have. So. Yes, there are. I mean, it's, it's unsustainable in that sense. And it, uh, Obamacare and other things that are coming on that are just making it harder and harder for employee, employers to employ employees certainly do contribute to that and take away from capital spending and all of that that uh, Greenspan was talking about. He's not wrong in that analysis. I mean, there are other things that we could note here, like, for example, the um, trillion dollars when you add up the, the defense budget and the intelligence budget. I'm sure there is some way that that could be uh, uh, tinkered with before we have to start cutting people's entitlements or at least the things that they've been promised. But yeah, at some point, there's gonna, someone's going to have to do, take the bullet, bite the bullet and do something about it. And the last politician that I heard with an actual plan about that was Ron Paul talking about making it uh, an opt-out uh, possibility for young people. But that's, that's politically unviable. That's crazy talk. Who would ever think of that? Speaking of Ron Paul, here we've got what Maybe 45 seconds left. Ron Paul was recently quoted as saying Russia leaves Syria. When do we? Is the United States going to leave Syria anytime soon? Should we? Can we? Um, and you got 30 seconds. Well, I mean, it would have been easier if they'd never been there in the first place. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it's one of those things. Can you just leave? And I guess, yes. You can. Uh, what kind of mess is that going to leave behind? Well, should have thought of that before you started su uh, supporting all the terrorists in Libya that uh, they also supported in Syria. So, um, yeah, it's a, me a huge mess. Uh, there's no easy answer. And uh, uh, yes, I mean, the U.S. should get out militarily and in terms of their support to the terrorists because they're only making it worse. Should have done the same thing in relation to Vietnam much earlier than we finally had our peace with honor. But uh, maybe maybe that's a lesson here. We have to let it go at that, James. Thank you for being on the program. James Corbett from thecorbettreport.com. I'm Alfred Addis. This is Financial Survival. Be back tomorrow. In the meantime, the good Lord bless you, me, Melody, Frank, the producer, and James Corbett. Good night.
Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. Most people realize their body needs clean water to function properly. Pure is the cleanest water, also known as distilled water. Some frauds pushing fake science and ignorant people repeating their disinformation and half-truths will tell you distilled water leaches minerals from the body. What they fail to tell you is distilled water only attracts and flushes inorganic minerals from your body. These are minerals your body cannot process and can interfere with your proper body functions. Distilled water does flush these inorganic materials from your body and is an effective and natural way to cleanse your body. AVR sells a distiller that distills one gallon every three and a half hours. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com, click on the Superstore, go to the distiller, check the pricing and how to order, and watch the video explaining in detail why distilled water is pure water. Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. have denied internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC seized in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be depended on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free-to-air satellite system from AVR. The AVR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75-centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $149. 
$199. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541-225-4659. That's 541-225-4659. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click Satellite System.
All right, good evening all. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It is Wednesday, March 23rd, 2016, and it's about seven and a half minutes past 8 p.m. Pacific time, if that's when it is where you're at. We're live, and that means you can call in 800-932-1980, 800-932-1980. You can also go to the chat room, participate in there, ask questions, make comments, or just chat with the other people in there and socialize, and that is located at our website, theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com. All right, and uh, you can get in touch with me directly through Yahoo Instant Messenger. My screen name is AVRN Talk. Well, there you have it. There it is. It's, uh, let's see, let's get to some things and stuff. Now, a lot of you have probably heard this, uh, and I, I mentioned it, because Glenn Beck just makes me want to puke, and he has for years. There was a time when I kind of liked a few things he said because he was new and uh, he was different, and uh, then I started listening to him, and it's like, wow, this guy, something wrong with him, man. You know, that's not to say everything he says is wrong, because it's not. But he, <laughs> he, something's wrong with him, man. He got out there and said, oh, you're God and this and that and the other thing. Well, listen to this. Here's a reply from Robert Jeffress. He's the pastor of the 12,000-member First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas. Now, look, I'm sure that makes him very rich, very powerful, real popular. I mean, he's got 12,000 fans and all this other stuff, but uh, I don't think he can be much of a pastor because I bet, how much you want to bet, he doesn't know every one of those 12,000 people. One of them walked up to him, he wouldn't know who they are, and that's not a pastor, folks. If you're a member of a church and a pastor doesn't even know who the hell you are, that's no pastor. You're supposed to be part of his flock. He's supposed to be the shepherd. He's supposed to be the one watching out for everybody. If he doesn't even know who the hell you are, how can he do that? So, yeah, he has a nice big religious organization, but I certainly wouldn't refer to the guy as a pastor because I don't think he's capable of doing the job of a pastor. Not because, you know, maybe he doesn't have the skills or whatever. I'm I'm assuming he does have the skills and, you know, the speaking ability and the knowledge of the Bible and all that. I'm not dissing him for any of that. What I'm saying is it's physically not possible for him to be a pastor to 12,000 people. But anyway, let's skip past that. Because I actually agree with a lot of what this guy says about you know, uh, Beck. Or should we just call him the crying man? Huh? Nah. Anyway, he's rebuking talk show host Glenn Beck for his recent criticism of evangelical Christians who live in the South and are not supporting Senator Ted Cruz. All throughout the South, the evangelicals are not listening to their God, Beck said at a rally in Utah on Monday. Beck's wacko comment speaks for itself, Jeffress says. Uh, he says, however, by using the phrase, their God, now, I was going to bring this up yesterday about Mormons, 
and maybe I did, <laughs> the phrase, their God, to refer to the God we evangelical Christians worship, Beck is finally admitting that the true God of the Bible is different than the God of the Book of Mormon. I congratulate Beck for his honesty in differentiating between the two, Jeffress adds. <clears throat> well, that's a fact. That's a truth. And that is something the Mormons never, ever want the rest of the country to recognize and realize and understand. They are not Christians. And that's not a slam. You know, the eight. This is America. Everybody gets to choose their own religion. I don't have to agree with it. I can think it's a comic book. You know what? You can go get a comic book and worship it if you want. I don't, you know, it's not up to me. I might think you're wrong and all kinds of things, but you still have the right to do it. You know, so that's not a slam on the Mormons to say they're not Christian. But they're not. And they used to admit that themselves openly, not just, you know, saying stupid things like that, that everybody can go, wait a minute, what do you mean they're God? There was a time when the Mormon church, in their preaching, in their, you know, proselytizing, would condemn the Christian church. And say, hey, you are an apostate bunch of liars. This is not the real thing. We're the real thing. They get a lot of the, you know, there are so many similarities in their, their organizational setup, their whole thing. They're, they're just nothing but cult, a different sect of Catholicism, really. Then again, kind of so are the Protestants. And there's some real whacked out Protestant you know, uh, religions, too, or sects, whatever you want to call them. But, uh, hey, in my opinion, anyway. But this is not, this thing used to be an issue. Because if you told the Mormon, a Mormon hey, you, you know, you're not a Christian, they'd look you straight in the face and say, you darn right I'm not a Christian. I'm a member of the Church of Latter-day Saints. That's what they would tell you. Now through their different presidencies, who they say is their new prophet. We get a new prophet every once in a while, and uh, if he wants to change everything, then he does, just like has been done. I mean, they have made thousands of changes to the Book of Mormon. Not revisions, not, you know, oh, we didn't translate this right. No, changes. Because some new guy came in and said, you know what, God told me something different. Write it down. Put it in the book what they do. Do they still marry more than one wife? No. Oh, God told one of their prophets, oh yeah, that's out. Now, Zen, you do exactly what the United States government said. That's what God told the prophet. Do they still, you know, not allow blacks in their church to be members? No, of course not. Not anymore. They did, but till God told them, oh, See, my Bible tells me God doesn't just change his mind about things, right? If God wanted somebody to be, you know, some religious sect to be married to more than one woman, he always will. 
If he doesn't want blacks in a certain church, he never will. Or Mexicans or blacks or whites or anybody. If God decides, I don't want them people in here, then that's forever. I don't want, you know, God doesn't change. Now, that's not to say God can't come up with a uh, a plan B to make it happen, kind of like, you know, happen with, uh, you know, well, our salvation. But because really, folks, never forget, we haven't earned salvation. Nobody has earned salvation. What we've earned is death and hell. Salvation is a gift. It's a way out of death and hell. But anyway, so Beck says this, and uh, Jeffers goes on to say, however, I'm somewhat puzzled that Beck claims to know how the God Christians worship would vote in the Republican primaries. Jeffers also uh, has introduced GOP frontrunner Donald Trump at many events, though as a pastor he is not officially endorsing any candidate. Beck, a Mormon, has endorsed Cruz and has spoken on his behalf at numerous rallies around the country. Is Cruz a Mormon? He doesn't say he is. One prominent academic who specializes in American religion takes exception to Beck's comments as well. Al. Assuming that Mr. Beck is referring to evangelicals who vote for Trump, I would make a distinction that Beck does not. The Bible certainly offers principles on how to think about government and politics. The Bible does not, however, tell us which individual candidates to vote for. Dr. Thomas S. Kidd, Distinguished Professor of History and Associate Director of the Institute for Studies of Religion at Baylor University in Waco, Texas. Well, i got bad news. After what, though, anybody... See, I'm not going to listen to anybody who's got anything to say out of Waco, Texas, after what they let happen to the French Davidians. Sorry. If other Christians don't vote for our preferred candidate, we should not say they are not listening to God. None of us has special access to God's opinions about candidates. And, well, maybe we do. But those opinions may only have to do with, you know, listen, if God tells you to vote for a certain candidate, then you should. That doesn't mean you should go out and tell everybody that they need to also. That's like God telling you, well, listen, I want you to be a dentist. You know, and if you really hear God tell you he wants you to be a dentist, then you should go be a dentist. But that doesn't mean you got to run around town telling everybody else they need to be a dentist too. And if you're not a dentist, you're going to hell. There are many reasons why devout Christians should hesitate to vote for Donald Trump, but it does not reveal Ted Cruz as the divinely anointed alternative kid concludes. Well, you know what? There are many reasons why devout Christians should hesitate to vote for anybody. Because, folks, whether you like it or not, and we can all gripe about it all day long, but... It is what it is, and what it is, is a lesser of two evils. The least stinky pile of crap in the sewer. That's what we're going for, folks, because none of the choices are really attractive. And especially not to a devout Christian. How do you vote for any of these people? Hillary Clinton? Really? 
Donald Trump, well, what is it, his third, fourth marriage? I mean, you know, come on. Remember when that used to be a disqualifying factor for an American president? Remember, even with Ronald Reagan, it was an issue. He's divorced. Oh, my God, he's divorced. Can you imagine divorce? Well, I guess it's not such a big issue anymore in America, seeing as how over 50% of marriages end in divorce in this country now. But at a time, it was. And every candidate, like, uh, oh, okay, let's look at Ted Cruz, the anointed one, who just happens to be a pathological liar, married to a money changer. Well, golly, I don't know, what could a devout Christian have wrong with that? It goes on and on, folks. You know, so as far as a devout Christian, how can you participate in this at all? Because no matter what you do, you're going to be picking evil. Maybe the lesser of the evils, but still evil. I mean, if you want to talk about, oh, there might be problems with you, yeah, well, there's problems with all of them. And there's problems with not just them, not just the candidates. How about how this is all, they do all this. All the monkey business that the Republican Party is pulling with their rules. Oh, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. Let's talk about how we can, you know, the American people have clearly, so far anyway, picked Donald Trump as who they want for their Republican candidate, and the Republican Party is going, oh, hell no. We're going to figure out a way. That's right, we're going to figure out a way to take this from the American people, because you're not taking anything from Donald Trump. You think he really, I mean, you know, okay, yeah, nobody likes to lose, right? But, I mean, the thing is, okay, so Donald Trump runs for president. He's got a humongous write-off for this, okay? I mean, can you imagine a tax write-off you get for running for president with your own money? He's not going to owe any taxes for the next 10 years. You know, the thing is, he's still going to leave, and he's still going to be a multi-billionaire, so, oh, you took it away from Trump. No, you didn't take it away from Trump. Who you took it away from, if you are able to take it away, is from the American people. At least the American people that voted in the Republican primaries. And that's a lot of people now. It's, the turnouts have been outstanding. That's who you're stealing from. That's who the Republican Party is stealing from. They're not taking anything from Donald Trump. What do you want? To say, oh, say what you want. But as a Southern Christian, I'm pretty sure my God doesn't like politicians behaving like diamond pinky ring wearing TV preachers telling lies and trying to kill people and donating their dollars to false causes. Stephanie Scruggs, a resident of Pensacola, Florida, posted on her Facebook page. Uh, she says she's a former national co-chairman of the Glenn Beck-inspired 912 Project. Criticism of Beck's attack on evangelical Christians who live in the South are not supporting Cruz were echoed by several participants on February 25th. You know what Beck just did? I mean, <laughs> you know what? If, if Cruz somehow wrangled the nomination away from Trump, all those states he lost in the South, he will lose to Hillary Clinton. Thanks, Glenn. Because those people ain't going to forget. 
Yeah, they still haven't forgot the Civil War. You think you're going to forget this from last week? Uh, let's see here. It is very disconcerting to see Beck traveling with Cruz. Elizabeth Hoover for Cruz in the Tennessee primary participated in one of the February 25th focus groups. I have a nagging concern about Cruz's integrity. <laughs> His association with Beck confirms this. What about his association with Mitt Romney? You want some concerns? Glenn Beck is a compared to Mitt Romney. Let me tell you something. That guy is like Mr. Corporate Raider. He's like a mafia guy, okay? He makes Donald Trump look like a, like a nice guy. I'd actually like to see Mitt Romney and Donald Trump in a fight. Not necessarily a physical fight, but you know, a business fight. Okay, look, take uh, your fortunes and try to put the other one out of business. You know, no rules. Just go ahead. Let's see what happens. Because, hey, either way, America wins. Because either one or both of them would disappear. They'd go away. They'd be out of business. And that'd be good for everybody. Because Mitt Romney ain't good for anybody in business. The guy is a, he's a corporate raider. All right, let me tell you what Romney's business does. Now, okay, Trump, he's lost money. He's made money. You know, he's gone bankrupt. Well, he, his company's gone bankrupt. You know, he, you know, of course, when that happens, investors don't get paid. They complain. They don't like Trump. Fine, that happens. It, you know, and Romney, though, what Romney does is he searches around for distressed companies. Then they go in and start buying a stock. So they can get a voice on the board. Then they either play nice or they make a hostile takeover of this distressed company. Then what they do is fire everybody down to the bare minimum, make everybody work double time, and they're not getting paid for it. You want to keep your job, you're going to work harder than you ever have worked because we got to cut costs, raise production, and make this loser company look like it can make money. It doesn't actually have to be able to sustain that because we're going to do things like not buy any inventory, not do this, not do that, you know, fire people before they get to their retirement, this and that and the other thing. We're going to do a bunch of things. We're going to fire all the full-time employees, hire nothing but part-time. Boy, that will cut our, cut our health care costs way down. Then on paper, this company looks like, wow, it's made a big turnaround. And then Romney turns around and sells it for more than he paid for it. And whoever gets stuck with this dog will be sorry in a year or two when they find out, oh, my gosh, this is an empty shell that just looked good on paper. Yeah, that's Romney, okay? That's his business. So as far as Trump the used car salesman goes, you know, I don't really trust Trump that much. I don't even particularly like him all that much. I mean, he's fun to watch. He is entertaining to a degree. But Romney is not entertaining at all. Romney is a scumbag, okay? Romney is a dirtbag who, who basically steals people's companies Makes them put, throws a fresh coat of paint on it and sells it for a pile of money to an unsuspecting buyer. Yeah, I wonder why our economy is so screwed. Oh, I tell you why. Because the ten thousand dollar suit wearing pieces of garbage like Mitt Romney are running the place. That's why. So 
you know, when they say, well, I got a nagging concern about Cruz's integrity because this association with Beck confirms this. Oh, yeah, well, hey, Mitt Romney is, uh, you know, also behind him. If he doesn't try to come in and do the same thing in the Republican Party that he does in his business practices. Beck is not reticent about pushing his Mormon faith, which from an evangelical perspective is heretical. Apparently, Cruz has no discomfort being called the fulfillment of a false prophecy. The fact that evangelicals have not fully embraced Cruz, but Mormons have, is troubling to someone who voted for Cruz, but now questions the decision. I am disgusted by Beck's comments, and he should be ashamed casting stones, Jim, a Trump supporter, and small business owner who participated in the folks group tells Breitbart. Are we counting sins? Let's see. Cruz has lied on multiple occasions. I call him a serial liar, a pathological liar, but then again, he's a senator, so that kind of goes, you know, that's a job description, actually. Smeared Trump horribly. Wasn't tithing while making over $250,000. I tuned Glenn Beck out a long time ago. Martha, a Trump alternative delegate focus group participant, told Breitbart News. I think he has issues and is in no position to determine who is or is not listening to anything or anyone, including God. His hysterics do nothing but turn me off, whether it's this or anything else. She says of Beck, I think he's done some good exposing some of those leftist relationships he has exposed. But once he starts on opinion, he always seems totally off the wall to me. I thought this for a long time, Martha concludes. Oh, let's see. I was offended by Glenn Beck's comments, as I was by Romney's speech several weeks ago. My God doesn't tell me how to vote. Amy Molina Another focus group participant told Breitbart, I believe, I believe God expects me to be involved in the political process for the good of his people and the advancement of his, his kingdom. I believe I'm called to vote according to morals and teachings of Jesus. I believe, okay, really? Do you? Because if you do, then you can't vote. You can't be involved in this scummy, sinful, lying, criminal operation called our election process, okay? That's just a fact. So, if you want to be holier than thou, don't say a word about the elections, and do certainly do not vote. Don't go anywhere near a voting poll. I mean, you don't want to get any on you. But that's, that's the truth of the matter. Is You know, it's sad. It, it really is sad, but hey, it's the way it is. And what, anybody going to disagree with me? Go ahead, call in, 800-932-1980. You call in here and you tell me how you can say, well, I'm a good Christian. And like this person, I mean, this person gone on more than I've heard really anybody about how they're supposed to vote. I believe I'm called to vote according to the morals and teachings of Jesus. Huh. I believe we should vote for the candidate who will enforce the expectations of personal accountability for one's life and actions and protection of our country and its citizens. Hmm. Well, here's something. I don't believe God endorses a specific candidate. What if he does? What if he does? 
What if he does and you're wrong? <laughs> and then you endorse somebody else. Now, you're not just endorsing a candidate God doesn't endorse. You're actually on the opposite team of God. Because if God's endorsing a candidate, well, I don't know that God does endorse any candidates. I can't imagine how he would endorse any of these candidates. However, keep in mind that God has used some very, very evil people in the past to do the things that he wanted done. You know, he doesn't always go to the nice guy, oh, you're the good Christian guy, okay, tell you what I want you to do. No, a lot of times God will use very evil people to carry out things that he wants done and cause to happen, stuff that he wants done. And that's how it is. Anyhow, so, anyway, that's that. I'm not going to beat the horse on uh, Glenn Beck any any more than I already have, but uh, we'll be back after the break. It's all my brother's hair. Yeah! Is everybody ready? Yeah! Five four one eight eight. That's one eight hundred three seven five 
800-242-4188. Listen to Financial Survival with your host, Melody Cedarstrom on American Voice Radio Network and Shortwave Radio. Visit DiscountColdAndSilverTrading.net or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. For the very best in gold and silver trading, call toll free 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Call now. Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Most people realize their body needs clean water to function properly. Pure is the cleanest water, also known as distilled water. Some frauds pushing fake science and ignorant people repeating their disinformation and half-truths will tell you distilled water leaches minerals from the body. What they fail to tell you is distilled water only attracts and flushes inorganic minerals from your body. These are minerals your body cannot process and can interfere with your proper body functions. Distilled water does flush these inorganic materials from your body and is an effective and natural way to cleanse your body. ABR sells a distiller that distills one gallon every three and a half hours. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com, click on the Superstore, go to the distiller, check the pricing and how to order, and watch the video explaining in detail why distilled water is pure water.
right, we're back. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Steffen. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It's Wednesday, March 23rd, 2016. It's about 841 out here on the Pacific Time Coast. And uh, if that's all true where you're at, that means we're live. 800-932-1980 is the call-in number. You can also go to the chat room. Located on our website, theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com. You'll see the chat link. Just click it. It's easy. You can also contact me on Yahoo Instant Messenger. My screen name is AVRN Talk. All right, let's see here. Uh, we got, I think we're done with Glenn Beck. What do you What do you think? Yeah, enough, enough said about him. Now, this is, uh, you know, <laughs> I hope you all listened to uh, Condition Critical earlier today because uh, Jay played a clip of, of uh, <laughs> I, how do I put this, uh, w- within the limits of radio. Uh, he had a clip of a couple of people that are the problem in this country. And um, here's another thing. Emory University. Now, this is in Atlanta, okay? Atlanta, Georgia. I, I don't know what's happened down down south, especially Georgia. I mean, I I read an awful lot of stories. I think it's mostly being generated out of the Atlanta area. I don't know. But, you know, you hear so many stories of uh, the police doing crazy things down in Georgia. And then you hear, you know, other things. And now this. Although it could be anywhere, and I'm sure this is pretty much every college or university in in the country. But listen, this actually happened at Emory University. Emory University president says students are scared and in pain. And you might wonder, well, what happened to the poor little babies? Did Did somebody threaten their lives? Did somebody kidnap them? Oh, wait, they're in pain. Are they kidnapped? Is somebody torturing them, beating the crap out of them like they deserve? No. No, no, no. Do you know why they're scared and in pain? Yeah, because someone wrote Trump 2016 in chalk on sidewalks. On the campus, can you imagine? Oh, my God, run for the hills. They're scared. How liberal of a bastion are these stinking universities? Have they completely given up on trying to appear that, oh, well, we just want to teach children. We're not here to politicize anything. They're afraid and in pain because somebody took the front-running presidential candidate from one of the major parties, and not in graffiti-like spray paint, but in chalk that can be washed off with, well, actually, you can just wait for it to rain, or walk over it a bunch of times, and it'll go away. But now they're scared, and they're in pain, you know, it just makes me want to just punch every 22-year-old in the face, you know, when when I read stuff like this. It 
how are they going to survive, folks, when they get out of college and into the real world? Well, I don't think they are going to survive. That's 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 my view. I don't think they are. The president of Emory University has spoken at demonstrators who said they were frightened after someone wrote Trump 2016 in chalk around campus. Students at the Atlanta school, which has an enrollment of more than 14,000, claim their safe space was violated when the messages appeared on sidewalks and buildings. Now, I wonder... Out of that 14,000, how many of them are actually complaining that they're safe space? And what makes them think they have a safe space? Jim Wagner, president of the Atlanta University, wrote Tuesday that the students viewed the messages as intimidation. Really? Would they say the same thing if somebody would have wrote in chalk, Hillary, 2016, or Bernie, 2016, I don't think so. So they feel intimidated by anybody who doesn't agree with them. Of course they do. And they voiced genuine concern and pain. This is an adult in a position of university president spewing out this crap. This guy ought to be fired. Where's the Board of Regents grabbing this guy and stringing him up by his, well, not his neck, and leading him out to the unemployment line? He acted after student government wrote to him and slammed the university's response, prompting a meeting that led to protests. Now administrators want to track down those responsible for the controversial markings. Folks... Since when, during a political campaign, did someone putting up a sign or painting a name or chalking a name on a sidewalk of the front runner of one of the major parties, when did that become controversial? Huh? Is it controversial that somebody who's not Hillary Clinton is actually running for president? Oh my God, that's so un- that's uncontroversial. That's just just it's unbelievable. But some commentators on the university student newspaper, I call them the voice of sanity, told the students to grow up and accused them of being babies. Yeah, yeah. Well, hey, like I said, the voice of reason. But this is going on, folks. This is what your little darlings are getting taught to be like at school, okay? You might say, well, you know what? I want my kids to get a good job. You know, I want my kids to have a good job, a good education, get a, lots of money and be very successful. And Yeah, well, guess what? You're dreaming. You might as well just flush all your money down the toilet. You know what you'd be better off doing? You'd be better off writing Junior a big fat check and saying, now, get out, go find a place to live, and start a business. Go learn a skill, start a business, be an entrepreneur, because you know what? Other than that, you're going to be some corporate drone not making as much money as you thought because, see, they're going to hire Habib 
for half as much as you make who will work twice as long as you will? Yeah. So there you go. I mean, I get parents want the best for their kids. And, and for a long time, you know, people have been, I say, propagandized into believing that, you know, well, college is the only way. College is the only way to be successful. You must get a college education or you cannot be successful. Well, okay, this is the same claptrap from the same bunch of losers that keep pushing failed policies that tell us, well, uh, we can make, uh, uh, we can cut down shootings if we just take away everybody's right to have a gun. Well, they've tried that, and in the places where they have succeeded, like Chicago, D.C., Detroit, New York, uh, wow, let's see. Where are most of the killings taking place by guns? Chicago, Detroit, D.C., New York, L.A., you know, all the places they've decided to implement this failed policy. And it's a failed policy because, gee, everywhere they do it, shootings go up. More people die. That's failed from what they say they wanted to do. How about the economic policies from these geniuses that are all telling you you got to go to college to get a good education, make good money, and be successful? Yeah, they're the ones running the economy. How's that going? Huh? Well, it depends what you want, I suppose. Depends what your goal is. What about the people who figure, oh, well, you know what, it'll be okay, because all we have to do is just kill seven-eighths of the people on this planet, and we'll be all back to happy time. Yeah, these are the people that are also telling you that, hey, don't worry, Genetically modified organisms are good to eat as food. Ah, those pesticides won't hurt you. You can drink that stuff. I mean, you'll die, but you can drink that stuff. Yeah, these are the same people telling you these things that are telling you that, hey, you got to go to college to be successful. You got to go to college or else you're going to be a loser. Yeah? So, <laughs> really? You should listen to those people? Do you really trust those people, to tell you the truth? They haven't told you the truth so far. Why would that be the truth? See, that's the thing about a liar, man. Once you find out somebody is like a pathological liar, there's no point listening to them anymore because they're liars, man. It doesn't matter what you say. It's just like somebody that you're done with, man. You ever had anybody that's like, you just say, that's it. You wash your hands of them, they're done with it. It doesn't matter what they say anymore. I mean, how much longer until everybody figures out, gee, maybe college isn't the answer. All right, here's something. Might be helpful, might not be. A couple of... Weeks ago, this is not me, this is whoever wrote this, we had a water outage. We knew in advance there would be working on our water main for about three days. I thought it would be a perfect time to test out our preps, especially since it was cold out. Here's what I was surprised by. Now, you see, here's somebody who is prepping, who had pre-warning that, okay, we're going to do this. It's going to take about three days. Good, perfect time, you know? Things that surprised them. We used a lot less water than I thought we would. We ended up finding excuses not to use water when we knew it would take more effort. We used baby wipes and Clorox wipes for cleaning and hygiene. That is probably not a good idea. 
those wipes, if you want to get them, and they sell them, folks, and they're really not a whole lot more expensive. They've got vinegar wipes. And you know what? You can have a rag and spray vinegar on it yourself if you want to, uh, you know. But if you're going to put it on your body, use the, uh, you know, the, the kind of vinegar you drink, the Bragg's or the Solana Gold, the, uh, the, the natural, unpasteurized with the mother uh, kind of vinegar. You, you, need, you don't need to be wiping Clorox on you, okay? That's not a good thing, okay? We used mouthwash instead of rinsing our teeth and wa- with water. This is not a good idea either, okay? You want to do this? Fine. Use like something like salt water or peroxide mixed with water, uh, you know, something like that. Uh, mouthwash, read what's on the label of your mouthwash, and, you know, you'll see why I'm saying this. We used a lot of hand sanitizer instead of washing our hands. Another bad plan, read the label, okay? Read the label and understand that your skin is your biggest organ, okay? That means anything you put on your skin, that's like rubbing it on your liver, all right? It's being intook by your body. I don't even know if that's a word, intook, but that's what's happening. We ate a lot of canned soup, which, you know, canned anything. The water's probably got fluoride in it. I eat canned soup, but, you know... Uh, I know what I, you know, I, I, <laughs> I'm i not telling people they should. I just like it, so I have that, uh, you know, the kind that doesn't need water. And we used almost all our paper plates, bowls, and cups, and plastic utensils. This is not a great idea. You know, it's also not a great idea when you have no water to pile up your sink full of dirty dishes. But, I mean, if everybody has one plate, one spoon, one fork, one glass, I mean, you should be able to find a way, uh, you know, to, to use them again. I mean, okay. Oh, there we go back to the vinegar wipes. Anyway, we made a lot more laundry than nor- usual. We ended up using almost every piece of clothing we owned and figured out that if we didn't fit anymore and looked bad or shabby because we didn't want to use our water for washing clothes. I had already not done laundry for several days beforehand because, well, life is busy. So clean clothes were at a premium. Clean socks became a barter item by the last day. Uh, We need to revamp our toilet strategy. The boys could go outside for number one, but the girls couldn't. No, the girls won't. Okay? Because, yes, girls can pee outside just like, well, not just like guys do, but they can also pee outside. All right? Because you can't just whip it out as a guy out on the sidewalk for the world to see. You will go to jail, okay? So obviously the boys are doing this in concealment, and the girls can also do it. They just won't. Not all girls, but these girls wouldn't. We filled up our tub before they shut off the water and used it all in one day flushing the toilet. Really? How many gallons does a bathtub take? Maybe 50, maybe 40, 40 gallons, 30 gallons, at least 30 gallons, right? Fill up a bathtub. Well, your 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 toilet will flush with under two gallons of water. Uh, actually, it will flush when you pour it into the into the bowl. It'll flush with one gallon of water, especially if you put it in a bucket. And you know, get it in there real fast. So I don't know, man. You you went to the toilet thirty times in one day. 
yeah, you're going to need to revamp your toilet strategy. By the third day, the house was pretty stinky. Hmm. Anyway, we ended up getting dehydrated a little because we knew we were only going to have the water we had in the house. We kept all finding excuses not to use it. Unfortunately, drinking ended up being one of the things we didn't do. Bad choice. Okay? Flushing the toilet goes away long before drinking the water should. We had milk and juice in the fridge and used up more of those than usual. I didn't realize this until we ran out of milk earlier than usual. And I took a look at our bottled water. We only used a few bottles where I figured we'd be almost out. So next time we have a water test, I'll be encouraging more water drinking. Yeah. Actually, folks... Don't wait for the water to go out to encourage everybody around you to drink more water because most Americans are dehydrated, okay? This is something that at least half the year I'm probably guilty of myself. Now, in the summertime, I tend to drink the proper amount of water for me, but in the wintertime, it just doesn't happen all the time. So, And I drink a lot more water than most people do. Most Americans, go look it up, are dehydrated. That's not good. You're not going to, you know, you're not going to be as healthy as you could. Cooking was harder than it had to be, of course. I am not at all sure anymore whether we are ready for a longer-term emergency. Well, folks, you know, that is one good thing that will happen when stuff goes on. Uh, Lights go out, you know, no electricity, no nothing, you know, for a day or two or three uh, that, you know, you realize where your weak points are, and you can work on them. So pay attention if that happens. Learn from it. You know, don't get all bent out of shape about it, but learn from it and make the adjustments. Chances are they won't be any humongous adjustments you've got to make, but you'll probably have to make some, you know, and uh, that's not a bad thing. It's good to learn from these things and uh, maybe learn something from what I just read you, and that will be good because uh, it's... Uh, <laughs> It's going to be a lot longer than three days, I'm thinking, folks, when it happens. So, anyhow, I'll be back again tomorrow. I got to go. We got good stuff coming up, so don't go anywhere. And, as always, thanks for listening. Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. Most people realize their body needs clean water to function properly. Pure is the cleanest water, also known as distilled water. 
some frauds pushing fake science and ignorant people repeating their disinformation and half-truths will tell you distilled water leaches minerals from the body. What they fail to tell you is distilled water only attracts and flushes inorganic minerals from your body. These are minerals your body cannot process and can interfere with your proper body functions. Distilled water does flush these inorganic materials from your body and is an effective and natural way to cleanse your body. ABR sells a distiller that distills one gallon every three and a half hours. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com, click on the Superstore, go to the distiller, check the pricing and how to order, and watch the video explaining in detail why distilled water is pure water. Carl Miller is an expert on the Constitution of the United States and the Bill of Rights. He has studied law for over 25 years and has a courtroom win-loss rate of over 90%. He is not an attorney. Carl prefers representing himself in propria persona, as he delights in tying federal prosecutors in knots, often winning the praise and respect of the judges at the same time. Carl is a highly decorated hero of the Vietnam War, serving in the elite Apache troop as a paratrooper and crew chief. The famous movie, Apocalypse Now, and the best-selling book, Apache Sunrise, are based on the true life experiences of this group of brave and patriotic Americans. Carl Miller was inducted into the Top Secret Project Blue Book, and he considers it an honor to have served in several operations supporting Lieutenant Colonel James Bo Greitz, including Operation Eagle Snatch. Carl is a veteran of hundreds of dangerous parachute jumps, breaking his legs or ankles six times. Shot down four times, personally shot twice, Carl has miraculously escaped death numerous times. Carl credits divine intervention and God's providence for preserving his life unto this day so he may complete the most important mission of his life, that of teaching others the importance of the Constitution of the United States and how to use it, and by using it, thus preserving it. Carl has taught hundreds of people, including housewives and truck drivers, the fine art of arguing the Constitution and winning in court. Carl says it's easy once you know how, and a whole lot of fun, too. Good evening, folks. I want to thank you for inviting me into your home tonight to talk to you about an extremely important issue to you. I, I basically uh, uh, am here to talk about the United States Constitution and our government and uh, some of the principles that... Uh, you need to understand most thoroughly so that you can have an effective opportunity to exercise your constitutional rights. The whole purpose of this is that you understand that these, these rights come from God, okay, that they are God-inspired. God is the one who, who endowed us with these rights, and that this Constitution merely uh, offers a legitimate program to protect those rights or to secure those rights and the blessings of those rights on ourselves and on our children for all time. It's important that you understand that the Constitution is uh, God-inspired. It's important that you understand that a lot of the principles that are in the Constitution actually come out of the Holy Bible, okay? And it's very important that you understand that this Constitution allows each of you each to be a king or queen in your own right, as long as you recognize one principle, that you don't ever create a situation where you take away the rights of another. So the whole point of, of having the Constitution is so that all of us can have the rights equally, and, and, and as long as we respect our neighbor and allow them also to have the rights equally, the, the, the protections are, are, are going to last forever. And, and the reality is that 
we are going to get thoroughly into your constitution. We want you to find a constitution wherever you can, and we are going to basically take you step by step through some of the most important parts of this constitution so that you can better exercise your rights in a timely fashion. Now, the facts are simple. If you don't know your rights, you don't have any rights, and that's just the way it is. And if you certainly couldn't exercise those rights timely if you don't know what they are. So what's going to happen is they're going to tell you what your rights are, and do you think they're going to tell you in your favor? Certainly not. Now, we've come a long way to put this program on to help you. By the way, my name is Carl Miller. I want to thank you again for inviting me into your home. We're going to proceed with vigor. Uh, I should tell you a few things about me, that I'm a, a prior service soldier. I served three combat tours in Republic of Vietnam. I should tell you that I was a participant in the top-secret project called Blue Book, where the officers in the jungle smelled a rat in a woodpile, and they decided to pull their, their top soldiers aside, and they come on over here. Let's come on over here. We want to talk to you. And they took their top soldiers in the corner, and they started teaching them things like duty, honor, country, pride in the Corps. They taught us history. They taught us all kind of uh, uh, programming as far as what's going on in our government. They taught us the Constitution. We had to be able to rattle the Constitution off just like we would any manual of arms. And this all took place to totally top secret so that we wouldn't offend any uh, chains of command or any uh, presidential problems similar to what uh, happened between General MacArthur. And the bottom line is uh, this was taken totally uh, upon their own, shall we say, careers to pull this thing off. And uh, they, this happened all throughout a lot of the military services in Vietnam, uh, Marine Corps, Air Force, Army. We all, they all pulled aside their best people, and they started putting everything on and teaching us our Constitution. So I'm going to try and instill in you that flame that was instilled in me over 25 years ago, in which I have been, I have been transferring ever since. I have been fighting tooth and nail to defend the Constitution. I have helped thousands and thousands and thousands of other people do the same. I teach people how to be their own counsel, to stand up in courts of law, and be able to exercise their constitutional rights in a timely and effective manner. And uh, the good Lord willing, I'll be able to keep doing that. So why don't we uh, right now try and get into some parts of the Constitution. The most important thing that I can teach you about this Constitution is the importance of reading it. You must read the Constitution and understand what physically is involved. You must know your rights and timely assert them. That is your burden. If you do not, then a legal term called latches incurs is in full force. Latches is a legal term which is defined as an as a latches is a species of action wherein a party of reasonable intelligence and integrity, having a right to take an action as is prescribed by law and having failed to timely do so loses all right to proceed. So what is actually happening out there, folks, is that latches is incurring because most people don't read their constitution and know what's involved. So then you are left to being told, well, that's what it means. Okay, so you just got to do what you got to do and you're told and, and they're going to tell you in favor of them. They're not going to tell you in favor of you. So it's better for you to read the book and understand what's in it. It's not a very big book. I, I highly recommend the book. I, you can get several versions. Uh, a lot of times you contact your congressman. Uh, my congressman, Dominic Vincentini, uh, state senator, supplied this one for me. Uh, John Kuhn, a libertarian candidate, has supplied several also. Uh, some of these folks, uh, just check with your local uh, congressman or state rep. Uh, a lot of times you can, they'll just give you one. If you cannot find one, go down to your United States uh, government building here in the Detroit vicinity. We, it's called the McNamara Building on the first floor. 
And uh, what we do then is we uh, go into the government printing office, and usually they're about a buck. But I highly recommend you go get one. I, I don't leave home without mine. I usually have three or four of them someplace. And I hand them out also myself. I give them out to whoever. I, I think one of the most kindest things I can do to a person is give them this book and show them how it works. This book is kind of like a genie in a bottle. If you know how to stroke this book, I'm telling you, the genie comes out. And it usually, with a force that, that you, it will be clearly recognized in any court in the land. Now that doesn't mean it'll be easy. You might have to work a little bit. But basically there's an argument, and it comes like this. If I violate your rights, you may or may not know about it. If you know about it, you may or may not be able to do something about it. If you do have an ability to do something about it, you may or may not have the financial wherewithal to, to go to a finished program. If you do have the, the financial wherewithal, you may not have the intestinal fortitude to go to a finished program. So most of the time, your governments and your, your abusive uh, personalities in government or your corporations uh, pretty much have carte blanche. To, to injure you, because in 99.9% .9 of the cases, nobody, most people will not proceed. But every now and then, you run into that one hard nut, and he doesn't quit or she doesn't quit till the cows come home, and what happens is that person will prevail. And those are the people that are actually generating better protections and better constitutional rights for you. Those are the ones that are going to the Supreme Courts and the Courts of Appeals and what have you that are pushing, that are spending their life funds to allow you to have the benefit. But if you aren't there to catch the benefit, then you, you the benefit is lost. So we're going to get right into the Constitution. We're going to teach you some things about it. Pay attention because we're really doing this out of an act of love for you. And we're hoping to God you're going to pick up on it and pay attention. Okay? Now. I'm going to put one constitution down here so the folks can see it. I will open this up from time to time to demonstrate things to you. I will basically try and read out of another constitution so that we can better show you some of the things that are involved. Now, it's important that you understand that this constitution is in writing. It's important that you understand that it is a legal document, okay, that it was ratified by all of the members in a Congress together, right? And that that document can be, you can get all the signatures on the document. Okay? And it's important that you understand that there was an offer, government offered to govern. There was a consideration. The citizens considered how they were going to be governed. And government promised that they would govern by constitution. And there was an agreement. The citizens agreed that if government promised there would be a government by constitution, that they would agree to allow the constitution into force. Now, there's a unique situation here. It's very rare when you find the party of the first part, which is the congressmen, officers of the government, who are also parties of the second part as representatives of we the people, the republic. And when they signed the document, they signed the document as officers of government, agreeing to the Constitution, and simultaneously as officers of representatives of the people in the republican form of government. And when they signed that document, that constituted a ironclad contract in writing enforceable in a court of law pursuant to the statute of frauds. Here in the state of Michigan, that's 566.132, Michigan Compile Laws Act, which basically states anything in writing is enforceable in the court of law pursuant to the statute of frauds. Now, all we're asking is that they enforce the contract. We want them to enforce the contract. In other words, if we read something in here and we got a good reason for why we believe it's the way it is, then they should honor that. 
and they should honor it in favor of you, the clearly intended and expressly designated beneficiary, but I'll get into that a little later. The program that you should understand, especially, is Article 6, Paragraph 2 of the Constitution. This is called the Supremacy Clause of the Constitution. It's located at Article 6. Everybody see that? Paragraph 2, which is going to start right here, and I'm going to read it to you. Okay? And basically what it says is this, this Constitution and the laws of the United States, which shall be made in pursuance thereof, and the treaties made or which shall be made under the authority of the United States, shall be the supreme law of the land, and the judges in every state shall be bound thereby anything in the Constitution or laws of any state to the contrary or notwithstanding. When they say notwithstanding, that means notwithstanding in law. That means that's a legal definition. Notwithstanding means notwithstanding in law. Now, a very important case, Marbury versus Madison, 5 U.S. 137. Pardon my reaching here. Marbury versus Madison, 5 U.S. 137. It's recorded at volume 5. Right here, it's an 1803 case, Marbury versus Madison. It's recorded in volume 5, page 137. Now basically what this case states, and, and I'm telling you right now, if you want to use a case to cite for any purpose in court, you have to read the case. If you haven't read the case, you haven't read the case and formed a basis upon which a logical determination in your mind could have been reached to form an opinion as to why you should do what you're going to do, then the judge will throw your case out. So read your cases. Don't just quote cases because that won't, you won't win. If the judge ever pins you down and starts asking you some merits of the case and you can't even understand what the case is about, nine times out of ten, he's just going to throw your case in the, in, the, in the can. So make sure you read the case. This is one of the leading cases in the history of the United States of America. The opinion of the court was given by the Honorable Judge John Marshall, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. His opinion was, anything that is in conflict is null and void of law. Clearly, he said, that for a secondary law to come in conflict with the Supreme Law was illogical. For certainly the Supreme Law would prevail over all other law. And certainly our forefathers had intended that the Supreme Law would be the basis of all law. And for any law to come in conflict would be null and void of law. It would bear no power to enforce. It would bear no obligation to obey. It would purport to settle as if it never existed. For unconstitutionality would date from the enactment of such a law, not from the date so branded in an open court of law. No courts are bound to uphold it, and no citizens are bound to obey it. It operates as a mere nullity or a fiction of law, which means it doesn't exist in law. Now let me give you an example in today's timing as to how effective this is. This argument is so effective that it literally nullifies the Brady Bill. It nullifies the crime bill that takes away the right of the people to keep and bear arms on these 19 weapons that turn into 159 weapons. It uh, stops this 666 bill that just went through that they're trying to take away the Fourth Amendment. You see, because they have no power to pass a law that's in conflict with the United States Constitution. And it's automatically null and void of law from its inception, not from the date you go to court and brand it as unconstitutional. Now, I want to get that real clear. A lot of people think that they got to go to court and brand it unconstitutional. I'm here to tell you, if you know your arguments and you can show your arguments, most of the time you will win. 
Every now and then you run into a hard nose, but I'll show you how to deal with him too, okay? But for now, I want everybody that's got a chance to go out to learn your Constitution, your Article 6, Paragraph 2 of your Constitution. I want you to to pay attention to what's going on here. Learn to read about this Marbury versus Madison case. I want to show you, pardon my reach again, this right here is an example of what is called Shepherd Citations. Shepherd Citations is a group of reporters that go through and keep track of all the court cases that have come before the courts, especially the Supreme Court. And they clarify before the court all of the cases. Each one of these little numbers here represents somebody hiring a lawyer and going to the Supreme Court. Every one of these. There's nine pages of these folks. Almost 200 years worth that goes against this case, Marbury versus Madison. And I want to tell you, this case is still supreme law of the land. If it wasn't, you would see O's in here where it was overturned, okay? You don't see any O's. There aren't any O's. That means the case is standing. There'd be an O in this column right next to here. You don't see any O's because there's no case that could come up against this case. That's how strong this case is, folks. Now, this is nine pages. Each This is two pages each. There's nine pages of this. This represents... If I was to, def to, to try and teach you what this represents, if I was building a wall from here to the moon, out of bricks, that's what that would mean in legal terms. Because that's how solid this case is. So it's very important that you understand your Constitution is an ironclad contract in writing enforceable in the court of law. It's very important that you understand Article 6, Paragraph 2, the Supremacy Clause, which says the Constitution and the laws and pursuance thereof and the treaties made or which shall be made under the authority of the United States shall be the supreme law of the land. The judges in every state shall be bound thereby. Anything in conflict or repugnancy is null and void of law. It bears no power to enforce, no obligation to obey, purports to settle as if it never existed. Unconstitutionality dates from the enactment. No courts are bound to uphold it. No citizens are bound to obey it. Now that is one of the most important lessons that I can teach you in the Constitution so that you can understand how strong this document is. You see. And when I go to the law library and I hit some of these law libraries, it's wall-to-wall -wall books, folks. I mean, it's like I take people down there and their chin's on the ground. And then I tell them, there's three floors of this place just like this, filled to the brim with books and books. And did you know that in every one of those cases, this little book right here, this one right here, folks, controls every single book in that law library. Every single one. Every single book in that law library is controlled by this little book. So can you understand how important it is for you to know what's in this little book so that you can effectively call on that kind of a commanding knowledge? Okay? It is absolutely vital that you get a hold of one of these books and start learning it and don't let anybody take away your constitutional rights. You, cannot, you can't even give your constitutional rights away. You have to voluntarily acquiesce by signing a document on a Miranda release form. That's how hard it is to give away your constitutional rights. We don't want you to give away any of your rights. We want you to know these rights backward, forward, upside down, and other. We want you to be able to rattle them off. Our soldiers could do it. And they did it with, with the great love in their heart and the pride and the, and the duty that they hold in their heart. And they swore on a sacred oath that they defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And then they perform their duties to the best of their ability, so help them God. And by God, they do, both in the service and out of the service, okay? We defend the Constitution to the death. We never surrender. We are soldiers, above all. And we love our country and our flag and our Constitution. We are what the, the term is under the 
The military code of conduct, I am an American fighting soldier. I serve the forces which guard my country in its constitutional way of government. I am prepared to give my life if necessary in defense of that constitution. And that's exactly what we're going to do. So I want you to pay attention. A lot of brave soldiers have died to pay for this book so that you could have the right. And the least you could do for your own self's sake is to learn what's in this book and be able to argue effectively what's in this book. You would be amazed how many times you can win if you just have this book and know what's in it. Okay? Now, that we get that by, we're going to go into some other arguments here. We're going to try and show you how to really effectively use this book. Okay? Now that everybody's got that in hand. The next thing we're going to start teaching you is things like about the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment is one of the biggies that everybody talks about today and the one that gets railroaded probably the most. The next is the Fourth Amendment and the Fifth Amendment, okay? But the Second Amendment is one of the most vital amendments here because our forefathers had such an important understanding of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, that was the First Amendment, that they turned around and realized that without the right to protect that first right, they didn't have that right. So the Second Amendment, they, they instituted the right of the people to keep and carry arms and that right shall not be infringed. Now, they started out by saying a well-regulated militia being necessary for the maintenance of a free state. Okay? Isn't that a true statement, folks? A well-regulated militia is necessary for the security of a free state. That's just a true statement. So is oranges are orange. That's why they call them oranges. Okay? But that doesn't have any legal precedence in theory. The most important part about that Second Amendment is it says the right of the people. And the Supreme Court has ruled in hundreds of cases that whenever it says the right of the people, it means the right each of every single citizen to possess the right equally. Now, a lot of guys like to hand out this Manola that, well, that's a collective right. You've got to be a member of the militia. That's all who done. You don't have to be a member of the militia. All you have to do is be an American. You have the right. The right to keep and carry arms, and that right shall not be infringed. Now, you will note after infringed, there is no subparagraph A, B, C, D, E, F, G, which would stipulate as to what would be an acceptable infringement. So all infringement is forbidden. Now, who says so? You say so. Do you see that? Does everybody see that? You say so. Who are you? I'm an American. And I'm telling you, you're infringing my rights. You're stealing my rights. I, I, I claim infringement. I claim encroachment. I claim impingement. I claim usurpation. I claim you're stealing my right. Because that's what they're doing. And I ask them, what is it you don't understand about the word infringement? Because that's exactly what it says when you look in Black's Law Dictionary. That's another thing I want to bring up. When you want to talk to these people in court, you want to get a hold of one of these books right here. It's called Black's Law Dictionary you would be absolutely amazed what's in Black's Law Dictionary. This is the exact words. <coughs> Just a second, please, folks. This is the exact words that you need to be able to definitively define the word game problem that we are having with these people today. They like to keep changing the words. But guess what? The words in this book are the words that were written when we were in the Constitution when it was signed. And the definitions that are in this book are enforceable in a court of law. You can bring this book into court and pull it open and say, this is the one, Judge. And they gots to listen. And that's the way it is. So for sure, if you're going to be in this, go down to one of your bookstores, uh, whichever you may have in your area, Barnes & Noble or any one of the dozens of decent bookstores, 
and get a copy of Black's Law Dictionary. You need that to be in this because this is kind of like uh, defining the map of how to get from A to B. You have to have this book to be able to pull it out so that you can turn around and tell them, hey, don't trample my rights. I take a real dim view of that. Another good book you can pick up on the Constitution is this. This American Constitution put out by West Publishing Company. This goes into a whole lot of widened arguments as to your Constitution. Now, after I'm finished talking to you, you're going to have a new concept of Constitution and how it works. You're going to understand that it's what you say it is. If you've got an honest right, now I'll give you a perfect example. Now, the First Amendment basically talks about the right of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, right? But isn't the right to work part of right of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness? You've got a right to work, right? Contract your labor, your skill, and your time of life as you see fit, right? Does that make sense to you? That's a First Amendment right. Another First Amendment right would be the right to travel freely unencumbered. See, no state can require you to have a license to travel freely unencumbered, and we'll go into that and show you how that is, is taken care of, okay? The bottom line is you need to learn as much as you absolutely possibly can in the shortest possible time about your Constitution because I'm telling you right now as we speak, they are trying to curtail that Constitution and take away rights that you have that have been given to you from your forefathers. There's only one thing that's going to stop that. Well, maybe two. There's two things. The first thing that's going to stop that, if all of us get together, get a hold of one of these books and start shaking it and say, whoa, R.C., we're not letting you take away that Constitution. This is America. We got an American flag on a pole out front. Last time I checked, this is the United States of America. We got a constitution here, and you ain't touching that constitution. So you call up that Bill McCollum in Washington, and you tell him he's the guy that sponsored that 666 bill to take away the Fourth Amendment right to, uh, to have a search warrant. You get a hold of him, and I'll give you his number later on in the speech here. And you call that joker up and you say, sir, what is it you don't understand about your oath of office? We'd kind of like you to leave the Constitution alone. Matter of fact, we'd like you to make it stronger than it is, not take nothing away from it, <clears throat> period. And we resent the hell out of you taking an oath of office to protect the Constitution, and we put you in office, and the first thing you do when you get in there is try and scuttle the Constitution and flush it down the toilet. We're not going to put up with that stuff. We want you to understand that real clearly. The second way we can do it is if necessary and proper, our militias can come together and decide to tell these people that are giving aid and comfort to the enemies of our country by breaking down our laws that you have broken the law of Title 18, United States Code, Section 2381, which says that in the presence of two witnesses to the same overt act or in an open court of law, if you fail to timely move to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States and honor your oath of office, you are subject to the charge of capital felony treason, and upon conviction you will be taken by the posse to the nearest and busiest intersection and at high noon hung by the neck until dead. The body to remain in state until dusk as an example to anyone who would take their oath of office lightly. You see, without that oath of office, this Constitution is worthless. That's why we have you take that oath of office, so that we know you will honor this oath of office and that you will keep our Constitution. We don't want anybody taking our Constitution away, and we're here to tell you right now, don't do it. We'll take a dim view of it. We probably will charge you. And we're not fooling around. Okay? Now, let's get into some other things in the Constitution. The bottom line here is you have to know to be able to exercise your Constitution. The most important parts about your Constitution are in your first ten amendments, okay? Obviously, the right of the people to keep and carry arms shall not be infringed. And that right shall not be infringed. You must claim your right if you want to have it. 
You have to be willing to do that. And if they are going to take your right, then you have to be willing to challenge them, whatever it costs. Now, the bottom line is any law that comes in conflict with that, what do we talk about in Article 6, Paragraph 2? If any law shall come in conflict with this, the supreme law, what happens? It's null and void of law. It bears no power to enforce, no obligation to obey, purports to settle as if it never existed, and unconstitutionality dates from the enactment of such a law, not from any date so brand in an open court of law. So what happened to the Brady Bill, folks? Canceled due to lack of interest. Okay? What happened to the crime bill with the gun infringements? If any portion of the bill be unconstitutional, the whole bill is unconstitutional. Because why? Repugnancy. Okay? It's repugnant to the United States Constitution. It's null and void of law. It bears no power to enforce, no obligation to obey. It purports to settle as it ever existed. Which case said so? Marbury versus Madison, 5 U.S. 137, 1803. That's how important that case is. That's why you got to go down to your law library and read. Okay? So Marbury versus Madison is extremely important. It's important that you be able to read the case, understand what they're talking about. Now, other cases that are involved are your rights to due process, like under your Fourth and Fifth and Sixth Amendments, right? The right of the people to be secure in their houses. The right of the people to be secure in their person, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrant shall issue, but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the person or things to be seized. And obviously that would imply that would imply that would imply that he'd gone before a judge and said, This is the guy, he did it, this is the crime that was done, and this is the evidence we're looking for, Judge, and we'd like to get a warrant and we're swearing on everything we told you is the God's truth, and then they can come over and they can search till hell freezes over. Okay? Does that sound logical to you? Now that's what Bill six 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 is trying to throw out. They don't want you to have that right anymore. Now it's important for you to immediately jump to the Ninth Amendment. What does the Ninth Amendment say? Enumeration in this Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Now, basically what that means in simplest of terms, Congress has no authority to add on to the Constitution in such a way that would take away rights previously guaranteed. What seems to be Mr. McCollum's problem? Does he not read the King's English? Simply spoken, he has no authority to pass this 666 bill. The Congress had no authority to pass this Brady bill. They had no authority to pass this crime bill because it clearly infringed on the United States Constitution. I don't care how noble the issue it was. I don't care how learned the people claimed to be. They weren't learned enough. Because if they were learned, they would have understood the Ninth Amendment forbids adding on to the Constitution by any laws whatsoever that takes away rights that are previously guaranteed. Excuse me. Now, let's go on. Let's hit the Tenth Amendment. The powers not delegated to the United States. What, is there, what are they talking about here? The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectfully or to the people. See, this is a limited contract. This contract is designed to limit government. 
And when you get into your police powers, you start understanding your police powers. Almost you'll hear this all the time. Well, we have police powers, broad and sweeping police powers. You look up Black's Law Dictionary of Police Powers. It says, the law of eminent domain of a state or political subdivision to enact laws for the common good and welfare and to curb crime. And in great big black letters, it says, within constitutional limitations. See the Tenth Amendment. Well, when they're talking about see the Tenth Amendment, this is the Tenth Amendment they're talking about. Now, do they have powers to take away previous rights guaranteed under the Constitution? The answer is obviously no, they don't. Obviously, the Ninth Amendment sets a clear limit on that. What is it these guys don't understand about their Constitution? They pass these Brady bills, they pass these crime bills, they pass these 666 bills to take away your Fourth Amendment right, requiring a search warrant. What is it that they don't understand about the locks on the Constitution? Now, do you see how wise our forefathers were? They knew. They knew history, and they knew that history repeats itself if people forget. So what they did is they set a standard, very importantly, toward the end of the contract that clearly stipulated exactly what limits would be there, you see. And it clearly stipulated that no power has existed to take away rights that were previously guaranteed. So how, therefore, is this being done? I'll tell you how it's being done, because they wants to. And they're not doing it by law. Now, why are they getting away with it? Because most of the people don't know any better. And if you don't know your rights and you don't timely assert them, latches and curse, latches being a species of action where in a party of reasonable intelligence and integrity, having a right to take an action as is prescribed by law, and having failed to timely do so, loses our right to proceed. So by you acquiescing, by not jumping up and saying, hey, Hold the line, Chester. You ain't touching that Fourth Amendment. You aren't touching that Second Amendment. We're not putting up with that stuff. You took an oath of office, we're going to hold you to it. You violate that oath of office, we're going to charge you with capital felony treason under Title 18 United States Code Section 2381. What difference does it make if they're in open rebellion against the United States or if they're breaking down the laws creating a rebellion? Isn't that giving aid and comfort to the enemies of our country? It most certainly is. And it's called sedition. Treason by sedition. Okay? Now we got to start collaring these guys and telling them, hey, what is it you don't understand about the Constitution and your oath of office? We're going to clearly correct that in the short interim. And if you don't want to fix it, we will remove you. And that's our duty and our responsibility. Now, when Benjamin Franklin walked out of all of the hearings to set up this Constitution, a lady reporter walked up to him and asked him, what is it we have now? And he turned to her and told her, we have a republic if we can keep it. Obviously, the burden is on us to make sure we keep it. So I'm asking you to get a hold of one of these constitutions and let's plan on keeping it. All right, now let's get into some more of the arguments on the Constitution. Your Fifth Amendment. Let's pull up your Fifth Amendment. No person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on the presentment or indictment of a grand jury except in cases arising in the land or naval forces or in the militia when in actual service in time of war or public danger. Nor shall any person be subject to the same offense be twice put in jeopardy. That's the double jeopardy statute of life or limb. Nor shall be compelled in any crime criminal case to be a witness against himself. That's a self-incrimination defense. Nor be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. That's your equal protection clause. 
You have an equal right to all of, the, all of your rights under the law, and you have a right to due process law. As a matter of fact, if they don't give you due process law, Title V, United States Code, Section 556D, is clear and specific, and it says if they deny you due process of the law, all jurisdiction ceases automatically. That's, that's Title V, United States Code, Section 556D, also 557, and Section 706 of that code. In other words, if they deny you due process at any time and you can prove it, you can, you can force a showdown and you can turn around and say, well, they might have had jurisdiction at one time, Judge, but they lost it when they denied me due process. All right? Now, the other parts are you cannot deny them life, liberty, property without due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. You know, how many times do you hear about that today? I mean, it's incredible. The Sixth Amendment is another important one. All of them are important, but there are more important ones, all right? In all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed, which district shall have been previously ascertained by law, and to be informed of the nature and the cause of the action and accusation, to be confronted with the witnesses against him. That's the right to confront your accusers. To have compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in your favor. That's the subpoena rights. And to have the assistance of counsel for your defense or you can stand as your own counsel. And I know they tell you that it's a fool that stands as his own counsel, but it's my argument that it's a fool that doesn't. Because I'll tell you why. You know your case better than you, better than anybody. How many times do you hear about gripes between attorneys and the citizens? The biggest gripe they have is, well, he never said nothing about that, or she never said nothing about that. Well, she didn't do this, or she didn't do that. Well, why? Because they don't know the case as good as you do. You're the one that knows your best case. The only thing they know is how to apply the law. So all I'm telling you is learn how to apply the law and your constitutional rights, and then you don't need to do that. The only time you get into trouble is if you run your mouth too much and you get into self-incrimination. So obviously you have to keep your wits about you and watch your mouth. But the bottom line is, actually, I personally believe you are the best person to present the facts of your case because you're the best person that knows all the facts. The only thing you know how to do is how to actually do it in a legal and lawful manner that is recognized by the legal community, and that's really not hard to learn. I can teach you, believe me. All right, the Seventh Amendment. In suits of the common law, where the value in controversy shall exceed $20, the right of trial by jury shall be preserved. It's supposed to say shall remain. And no fact tried by a jury shall be otherwise reexamined in any court of the United States, because the jury is the ultimate trier of fact. Then according to the rules of the common law. Hmm? Now, we'll get into that common law argument. There's a lot of heavy arguments around that common law. Basically, I don't want to overwhelm you on the first time out of the shoot. <clears throat> because that's not hard to do, okay? Now the bottom law, line of this Constitution is it's all in writing. It clearly represents a contract. I'm asking you to learn your contract. I'm asking you to learn the book. Learn your contract. I mean, when you go to some place to do some work on your car, you read the document that comes with it for the warranty, don't you? Why? Because just in case something goes wrong, you want to be able to bring it back, right? Well, I'm asking you to read the warranty on your Constitution so that you can understand the rights that you have under that Constitution. So that if you don't get it right, we can bring it back. Does that make sense to you? All right. Now, it's also important that you understand that this Constitution is a very unique document and that this Constitution is supposed to be enforced, and I'm going to teach you some things here right now. This is a 
program, I don't know how it's coming out here, this right here is representation. I know it's kind of hard to see here, but basically what we're talking about here is this comes from the books that tell the judge how, right here and over here, this comes and tells the judge how the Constitution is to be interpreted. This is from the Amjuris Prudence Volumes, and this is Volume 16. You want the Constitutional Law section right here, Constitutional Law, and you want Section 97. And when you start reading it, the most important part about it, and I'll read it, is that a Constitution should, relieve, should receive a liberal interpretation in favor of the citizen is especially true with respect to those provisions which were designed to safeguard the liberty and security of the citizen in regard to both person and property. Can you see that? Can you all see that? Is that coming out right here? Over more. Okay. All right. To safeguard the liberty and security of the citizen in regard to both person and property. See Note 31, Brides First United States, 273 U.S. 28, and all of these 40 Supreme Court cases hold that axiom. In other words, it's supposed to be liberally enforced in favor of the citizen for the protection of rights and property. And a constitutional provision intended to confer a benefit should be liberally construed in favor of the clearly intended and expressly designated beneficiary. 32. But on 32, DeJammer versus Hospital Authority of Albany in all of these cases. Okay. You see that? All right. Help me out here. Okay. Is it in? All right. I'm just trying to tell you. You can go look this up, and you can better see it. Can you see it clearly now? Okay. All right. Now, let's do that over again. And a constitutional provision intended to confer a benefit should be liberally construed in favor of the clearly intended and expressly designated beneficiary. Similarly, a provision intended... Similarly, a provision intended... To afford a remedy to those who have just... Beneficial construction for the purpose of extending the within the meaning of the terms, and that's Ryder versus of Ohio. That's note number 33. Okay. Now this comes out of 16th Am jurisprudence. In other words, I have this constitution. This Constitution is a contract in writing enforceable in the court of law pursuant to the statute of frauds. I'm asking for specific performance, Your Honor, in favor of me. I am the beneficiary of the contract. There's also a basic premise in contract law, basic contract law 101 of any first-year law student that says, the contract shall be enforced most favorably in favor of the non-preparer. And that's you. You didn't prepare it. Now, if you believe, honestly, that you have a right, and you can timely bring that right before a proper adjudicated authority, and you can clearly stipulate as to what your right was, guess what? They got to listen. That's the way it is. That's the way it's supposed to be. And I'm telling you, if you know your rights and you timely assert those rights, you have those rights. But if you sit on your haunches and you cry foul, <clears throat> that's terrible. Somebody ought to do something about that. Hey. Be a somebody. Do something about it. Don't sit there telling me that somebody ought to do something about that. Be a somebody. You do something about it. You honestly got an honest bitch. You go out there and you take care of it. Because that's what it takes to be an American. That's what, all, that's what it's all about. That's what being an American is all about. That's what separates you from the rest of the whole world. Because Americans, you don't trample on their rights because they're going to come get you. 
You do not trample on their rights. They won't put up with it. So be an American and don't put up with it. Stand up there and be counted. Now, I want to read the next argument there, which is argument number 98, which basically deals with the effect of an emergency. Argument 98. Does everybody see that there? Get it there? Pretty good. All right. Argument 98. While an emergency cannot create power and no emergency justifies the violation of any of the provisions of the United States Constitution or state constitutions, public emergencies such as economic depression, all right, go over here to the next page. What happened here? All right. All right, let's go. For especially liberal construction of constitutional powers, and it has been declared that because of national exigency, it is the policy of the courts in times of national peril so liberally to construe the special powers vested in the chief executive as to sustain and effectuate the purpose thereof, and to that end also more liberally to construe the constituted division and classification of the powers of the coordinate branches of the government, and insofar as may not be clearly inconsistent with the Constitution, right? In other words, they can't be in conflict with the Constitution to vest extraordinary powers in the chief executive. But I'm telling you, on the other hand, a contention that a grave emergency, such as the Depression, should permit construction of the constitutional provisions which would meet the emergency was rejected. In one case, the court holding that neither the legislature nor any executive or judicial officer may disregard the provisions of the Constitution in cases of an emergency where the plain and unequivocal terms of the Constitution present to question of construction as to departures in emergencies. So not even an emergency justifies the taking away of constitutional provisions. And I know you've heard differently. I know you think, well, they got an emergency. They just declare an emergency, and then they, the president issues an executive order. But let me ask you, if it's a repugnant to the Constitution of the United States, is it the law? No. Who says so? We do. We're the people. It's our country. It's our Constitution. We're the ones that say you can't do that. And we mean it. You better, better listen. All right, now, let's get into the next argument here. Now, I'm, I hope I'm not boring you to tears here, but it's kind of important that we cover these basic things so that you can understand. As to the construction ref with reference to the common law, an important canon of construction is that, that constitutions must be construed with reference to the common law. That means the law of the little people out there, not the corporations, okay? Since it, in most respects the federal and state constitutions did not repudiate but cherished the established common law, this fact has been taken into consideration by the courts in construing certain clauses in a state constitution, such as the provision securing their right to a jury trial. Also provisions in regard to crimes have been interpreted with reference to the common law rule that one, that one charged with a crime may be convicted of a lesser offense necessarily included in the crime charge. In such cases, the courts of the state always regard the language in the common law sense. So the common law prevails. Don't let anybody tell you this admiralty law prevails because it only prevails if you get sucked into it. We're not going to let you do that. We're going to teach you how to beat it. The common law also permitted destruction of the abatement of nuisances by summary proceedings. Traffic tickets, folks. That's what a traffic ticket does. It is a writ of assistance, a bill of attainder. It's unlawful in the United States of America. And it was never supposed that a constitutional provision was intended to interfere with this established principle. And although there is no common law of the United States in the sense, 
Who said so? Erie Railroad versus Tompkins. Okay. All right. Of a national customary law, as distinguished from the common law of England, adopted in the several states, in interpreting the federal constitution, recourse may still be had to the aid of the common law of England. It has been said that without reference to this common law, the language of the federal constitution could not be understood. So the common law applies, folks. And we're going to get into that common law heavily in the advanced section, all right? Okay. Now let's get back into this. In interpreting the federal constitution adopted by the several states, all right, the recourse may still be had to the aid of the common law of England. It has been said that without reference to the common law, the language of the United States Constitution would not be understood. This is due to the fact that this instrument and the plan of government of the United States were founded on the common law as established in England at the time of the revolution. Okay? Therefore, it is the general rule that the phrases in the Bill of Rights taken from the common law must be construed in reference to the latter. Specifically, the United States Supreme Court has taken the common law into consideration in construing the Fourth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment provisions relating. All right? So the common law is extremely important that we get in, and we will cover that thoroughly. It's important to understand that most of you out there aren't citizens at the common law. That only, only those that understand the differences in admiralty and maritime law, those that are corporations, officers of corporations, those are officers of government residing in the District of Columbia, the 14th Amendment duality of citizenship, which is talked about in the case of Erie Railroad versus Tompkins, which is a rather heavy argument. And I will cover that thoroughly with you so that you understand where the traps and the differences are. But for right now, I'm trying to demonstrate to you construction and programming so that you can understand that this Constitution right here is the supreme law of the land. It is a contract in writing. It is enforceable in favor of you. In an open court of law, you are the beneficiary. Okay? I want to give you some basic more points on this AM jurisprudence argument. This is section 114 of the 16th volume of AM jurisprudence second. I'm going to give you a couple more of these sites so that you can understand how powerful a document this is. Okay? Let's go to the next section, which is 115, which is, or, uh, let's see, which one? 117. 117 is the next serious section. They're all serious. By the way, I highly recommend you go down to the law library, grab that 16th volume of jurisprudence, start at section 1, and start paging through to section 300. You will absolutely be astounded. We are now in 16th AM jurisprudence, second, section 117. And I will read it to you. Basically, various facts and circumstances extrinsic to the Constitution are often resorted to by the courts to aid them in determining its meaning. As previously noted, however, such extrinsic aids may not be resorted to where the provision in the question is clear and unambiguous. In such a case, the courts must apply the terms of the Constitution as written, and they are not at liberty to search for meanings beyond the instrument, which that militia argument and that collective law theory of the Second Amendment is. They're reaching. They're reaching far. All right? Clearly it says in the plain English, the right of the people to keep and carry arms shall not be infringed. Now, what is it you don't understand about the word infringed? They're infringing. The Brady Bill, it's infringement. 1968 Gun Control Act, it's infringing. All of these, uh, the CCW acts of these states, they're infringing. 
Who says so? You do. How shall a document be enforced in favor of who? You. When are you going to enforce it? You're the one that is the, the citizen. All power is inherent in the people. You're the one with the power. Enforce your power. All right? Does everybody understand that argument? That's the magnificence. I'm bringing the genie out. We're stroking the bottle here. And I'm going to bring the genie out here in a second. You're going to understand the magnificence of the power of this book. You see, once you understand this is an ironclad contract, once you understand that this is enforceable in the court of law pursuant to the statute of frauds, once you understand you have a right to claim specific performance on the contract, Your Honor, I'm demanding my right to keep and carry arms, and that right shall not be infringed. I want specific performance. I am the holder of the contract. It's supposed to be enforced in favor of me. I am the clearly intended and expressly designated beneficiary, the citizen. I want the thing protected in, in favor of my right. Does that make logical sense to you? Now do you start to understand the power of this document? Okay? See, before, you just thought it was a bunch of writing in some, uh, in some uh, textbook that you had to take when you took a civics class in high school in the 11th grade. See, I want you to understand that you don't leave home without this. This is more important than your credit card. Okay? Next, let's get into the next section. I'm going to cover some more of these AM jurisprudence sections so that you can understand. I want to get into uh, section 155. 16th Am Jurisprudence, 2nd Section 155. Since the Constitution is intended for the observance of the judiciary as well as other departments of government, and the judges are sworn to, to support its provisions, got me, sworn, as an oath of office, sworn, the courts are not at liberty to overlook or disregard its commands or countenance evasions thereof. It is their duty in authorized proceedings to give full effect to the existing Constitution and to obey all constitutional provisions irrespective of their opinion as to the wisdom or the desirability of such provisions and irrespective of the consequences. Thus it is said that the courts should be in our alert to enforce the provisions of the United States Constitution and guard against their infringement by legislative fiat or otherwise. In accordance with these basic principles, the rule is fixed that the duty in the proper case to declare a law unconstitutional cannot be declined and must be performed in accordance with the deliberate judgment of the tribunal before which the validity of the enactment is directly drawn into question. If the Constitution prescribes one rule and the statute another and a different rule, it is the duty of the courts to declare that the Constitution and not the statute governs in cases before them for judgment. Does everybody understand that? He's, they're telling the judge, you've got a rule in favor of the Constitution. And if you know your Constitution, whose favor are they going to rule in? Yours. But you have to have enough hair on your tail feather to walk in there and say, hey, I'm an American. And I have a constitutional right. That right shall not be infringed, and you're infringing. And I'm asking you not to do that, because it's not nice. And I'm asking the judge to do his duty under his sworn oath of office and uphold the United States Constitution as he swore he would under Article 11, Paragraph 1 in this state, which says that he shall swear to protect and defend the Constitution from all enemies, foreign and domestic, and he will perform his duties to the best of his ability, so help him God. Now, let's get closer to so help him God. Now, let's get into another one of these. We've got a load of them, folks, so let's bear with me here. 16th Am Jurisprudence, 2nd Section 177. 
Declaratory judgments. Declaratory judgment actions have often been utilized to test the constitutionality of a statute and government practices. The Uniform Declaratory Judgments Act makes specific provisions of the determination of construction or validity of statutes and municipal ordinance by declaratory judgment and is considered to furnish a particularly appropriate method for the determination of controversies relative to the construction and validity of the statutes and of ordinances. The Federal Declaratory Judgment Act, although it does not mention declarations as to the construction or validity of the statutes, has been invoked frequently as a means of assaying the constitutionality of congressional legislation. A plaintiff can have a declaratory judgment action on the constitutionality of either the federal or state statute by a single federal judge. So long as he does not ask to have the operation of the statute enjoined, you can't enjoin a constitutional right. A court may grant declaratory relief unless there is a case of controversy before the court. That is, the dispute must consist of specific adverse claims based upon present rather than future or speculative facts on which to base the adjudication. All right? I'm trying to tell you folks here, you have a right to demand a declaratory judgment, which we are going to do in several of our cases here. And they got to declare. Is it constitutional or isn't it constitutional? If it's constitutional, it has to be judged in favor of who? You, the citizen. Why? Because you're the, the beneficiary. It's supposed to be enforced in favor of you, the beneficiary, the citizen, for the protection of rights and property. See Breyer's First United States, 273 U.S. 28. And the 40 Supreme Court cases that support that mandate. Okay? Now let's get, there's just a couple more here, bear with me. I know you're probably bored to tears right now, but I don't want you to do that. I want you to pay attention. Okay, we're at section 255. 16th Amateur Jurisprudence, section 255. In all instances where the court exercises its power to invalidate legislation on constitutional grounds, the conflict of the statute with the Constitution must be irreconcilable. The Brady Bill. Irreconcilable. Huh? In other words, the court is without authority to declare a statute unconstitutional unless it is in positive or direct conflict with the statute or with the Constitution. Thus, a statute is not to be declared unconstitutional unless so inconsistent with the Constitution they cannot be enforced without a violation thereof. Because that would be violating the Constitution. We can't have that. What happened in Marbury versus Madison? 5 U.S. 137. Same thing. A clear incompatibility between law and the Constitution must exist before the judiciary is justified in holding the law unconstitutional. This principle of, is, of course, in line with the rule that doubts as to constitutionality should be resolved in favor of the constitutionality and the beneficiary, you, the citizen for the protection of your rights and property. Okay? Does everybody pick up on that? Now, let's, let's skip to 256. 256. Right here. The general rule is that an unconstitutional statute, whether federal or state, though having the form and name of law, is in reality no law, but is wholly void and ineffective for any purpose, since unconstitutionality dates from the time of the enactment and not merely from the date of the decision so branding it. And wouldn't it be interesting if 34, 34, where's 34? There's 33, where's 34? Here, 34. There's 35, right here's 34. State X Rel versus 
Nguyen V. Greer. But I'll tell you what, Marbury versus Madison comes higher than that, okay? All right, 34. Let's cover that again. And ineffective for any purpose. Since the unconstitutionality dates from the time of the enactment and not merely from the date of the decision so branding it, an unconstitutional law in legal contemplation is as inoperative as if it never had been passed. The Brady Bill, the Crime Bill, the 1968 Gun Control Bill, all these bills. Such a statute leaves the question that it purports to settle just as it would be had the statute not ever been enacted. Go on. No repeal. No repeal of an enactment is necessary. Since an unconstitutional law is void, the general principle follows that it imposes no duties, confers no rights, creates no office, bestows no power or authority on anyone, affords no protection, and justifies no acts performed under it. A contract... Did everybody pick up on that keyword? Contract? A contract which rests on an unconstitutional statute creates no obligation to be impaired by subsequent legislation. No one is bound to obey an unconstitutional law. No courts are bound to enforce it. Persons convicted and fined under a statute subsequently held unconstitutional may recover the fines paid. A void act cannot be legally inconsistent with a valid one. And an unconstitutional law cannot operate to supersede an existing valid law. Indeed, insofar as a statute runs counter to the fundamental law of the land, the Constitution, it is superseded thereby. Since an unconstitutional statute cannot repeal or in any way affect an existing one, if a repealing statute is unconstitutional, the statute which it attempts to repeal remains in full force and effect. And where a... Well, what did I say there? Remains in full force and effect. Is the Second Amendment in full force and effect? You better believe it. Okay? Now, what is it they don't understand about infringement? Galaxy 25, Transponder 5, Frequency 11836 Vertical. You can listen to the American Voice 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Now, folks, the militia is organized because they have been concerned about our Constitution getting dumped in the, in the, in the can. Also, we want to show them this. These concurrent resolutions here expressing the sense of the Congress regarding the need for the President to seek the Senator's advice and consent to ratification of the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child. Okay. United Nations Consent on the Rights of the Child. Okay. John Conyers is in on this. He's one of our guys, too. Okay. Now, the bottom line is... They're setting standards, all right? And on these standards, whereas it is estimated that every night in the United States at least 100,000 children go to sleep homeless, whereas, I mean, they make all these allegations, wherein the United States has the world's largest gross national product, yet American children rank below the top 15 nations in regard to the health and well-being, whereas in 1989, the infant mortality rate for the United States ranked 19th in the world, being Singapore or Spain. I mean, they make all these allegations about the United States and the national 
Commission on Children has declared that every child in America needs an excellent education, yet approximately 40% of the nation's children are at risk of school failure. I mean, they go on and on. Whereas the United States, 2,600,000 children were reported to be abused and or neglected in 91. I mean, this is ridiculous. Whereas it's estimated that 1,800,000 teenagers were victims of violent crime. Whereas the Supreme Court has never fully articulated the range of rights to be accorded to children under the United States Constitution or fully articulated the manner in the Constitution as applicable to minors. It is. Whereas the positive futures of our families, communities, and nations are dependent. Now, they, they keep reading all these whereases. Whereas 29 others nations have signed convention indicating their intention to ratify the convention in the future. And then you get down. Whereas it is essential that the United States sign and ratify the convention and rights of the child and begin implementing convention legal standards in order to improve and protect the lives of children. Believe me, they're not trying to protect the lives of children. They're trying to create a new federal bureaucracy. Whereas at the World Summit of Children in September such and such to sign the World Declaration of Survival, Protection, and Development of Children, which would include commitment to work and promote earliest possible ratification and implementation under the United Nations and Conventions of the Right of the Child. Whereas the House of Representatives passed a resolution during the 101st Congress urging the President to seek consent of the Senate to ratification of the Convention of the Rights of the Child. But such action having not occurred, it is necessary that the Congress implore the President to take action on the Convention now. And now they want to push it. All right? Now, you got to understand, folks. They're not doing this for the children, believe me. They're doing it because they want to create some new kind of problem. Children tomorrow, I apologize to you on behalf of those in my time for the things we didn't do. We didn't stop the tyrants so your fate could be prevented. We watched them steal our freedom, but our silence we consented. We didn't choose to circumvent the doom you've not escaped, while the Bill of Rights was murdered and the Constitution raped. Some of us were lazy and too busy, others too afraid, to think about our children, the ones we have betrayed. We say we were too busy to be concerned or care to try to ease the burden of the chains we've made you wear. A debt of 17 trillion, more money than exists, because we fail to heed God's call of usury resists. We could have been good shepherds when the wolf got in the fold, yet watch the flame of freedom die, which leaves you in the cold. We changed our great republic, which was forged in blood for liberty, to a socialist welfare state, which we call democracy. I'm sorry we were so timid, betrayed by a selfish generation. We left yet a remnant of a free and prosperous nation. I'm sorry for our action like sheep we have behaved. We could have left you freedom. Instead, you are enslaved. Children of tomorrow, descendants of our land, I'm sorry we allowed this fate. You now must understand. Children of tomorrow, educate yourself if by reading the Bible of... The Bible to break the chains we left you with maintain. God's Ten Commandments use reason, logic, and common sense. Suffer the little children to come to me, for such is the kingdom of God. Dennis Byron. This come off of the Amateur Radio Freeman's Bulletin Board, August, September 1992. End of transmission. So I think you can see here, at one time they pretend to do all this, and yet... <laughs> On the other, they do all that. So I thought this was very a poignant uh, thing to put out on the air and try and hammer across, okay? Now we want to cover some other things. We want to cover the Brentwoods Agreement Act. And we're trying to hustle up here. What do we got down there? Let's see. Anglo series. That's the treason statutes, the 22 U.S.C. 
We want to go for Ontario Railroad versus Tompkins. That's the last thing I want to cover. United States. We got Marshall versus Kansas. We got uh, constitutional arguments. We got civil rights. Sure, so many arguments. Oh, yeah, we want to cover the 1 207. Remember, I told people about the 1 207? want to cover about the 1-207. Remember I told you sign your name 1-207 UCC 1-207 without prejudice. This is it right here, folks. This is uh, the 1-207 Uniform Commercial Code. Can you get that? Okay. Got it? All right. This section provides machinery for the continuation of performance along the lines contemplated by the contract. What contract? The bankruptcy contract. Despite, that's in 1933, the pending, pending dispute by adopting the mercantile device of going ahead with delivery acceptable acceptance or payment without prejudice under the protest, under reserve with reservation of all our rights and the like. All of, those, all of these phrases completely reserve all rights within the meaning of this section. This section, therefore, contemplates that limited as well as general reservations and acceptance by a party may be made subject to satisfaction of our purchaser, subject to acceptance by our customer, or the like. This section does not add any new requirement of language of reservation where not already required by law, but merely provides a specific measure on which a party can rely as he makes or concurs in any interim adjustment in the course of performance. When they say performance, they're talking about contractual performance. It does not affect or impair the provisions of this act, such as those under which the buyers right remedies for defect survive acceptance without being expressly claimed if notice of the defect is given within a reasonable time nor does it disturb the policy of those cases which restrict the effect of a waiver of a defect to reasonable limits under the circumstances even though no such reservation is expressed now this is all what they're talking about when you write down without prejudice. They're telling you you have a right to reserve your right. So I'm telling you to use it. Don't screw around. Sufficiency of the reservation. Any expression. You see that? Any expression indicating an intention to preserve rights is sufficient such as without prejudice, under protest, under reservation, with reservation of all our rights, under duress is another one. The code states an explicit reservation must be made. Explicit. Undoubtedly is used in place of express to indicate that the reservation must not only be expressed, but it must also be clear. Under duress that such a reservation was intended in advance, right? The term explicit as used in UCC 1-207 means that which is so clearly stated or distinctly set forth that there is no doubt as to its meaning. Okay? Now that is the reservation I want you to claim. 
I want you to screw around. I want you to use your head for something other than a hat rack. Because I'm telling you. Just do it. Just do it. Yeah, just do it. Yeah, you don't tell them nothing. You sign it and you walk out. When they ask you what that is, just say that's something I put down on my signature every time so I know it's me. You didn't learn all this stuff overnight, and you're not going to give somebody these classes overnight. Believe me. If you think you're going to teach somebody this stuff all night, you're dreaming. It takes a long time of serious study to get to the level of where you're at. And you're not going to deliver that to anybody overnight. So my sincere advice is don't try and do it because it ain't going to happen in your lifetime. Just sign it. Do what you're supposed to do. If people want to listen, then you let them listen. If they don't want to listen, then you say, oh, well, I knew that. Okay. Now, let's go on here because i got a bunch of stuff to cover and we're running out of time. All right, what do we got here? cover the militia. There's a lot of people you're hearing talking about the militia. I want to get the Brenton Woods Agreement Act, too. If we can. Let me see here. I know we had it. Oh, Lord. This is the hard part, keeping track of everything. Okay. Alright, we will find it. I promise you that. Alright, what we want to do... We want to show off some of these things. Under executive order of the president, all persons required to deliver, on or before May 1st, 1933. Try and blow that up. That's a good one. That's all your gold and silver. I want to make sure we get into all kind of arguments here real quick. Should we have some gold and silver? By law? Should we have some? Yes, yes. I think you should set aside some serious money to put in. I think people shouldn't have everything in gold and silver. I think you should have... I think you should buy toilet paper, and I think you should buy food, and I think you should buy cough medicine, and I think you should buy laundry soap, and I think you should buy, you know, have some stuff around like you would keep your normal business and put a little bit in gold and silver. I think you should have a pump shotgun in your closet to defend your house. Something, yeah, something to defend your house. Not that you may need it, but if you do, you got it. I think you ought to seriously consider. All right, we got the militia here. That's one of the next biggies we want to talk about. The militia. All right, let's do that. I'll bring that Bretton Woods Agreement Act in yet. But that's also serious. Oh, here we go. Here we go. That is good. Here we go. Now, here we go, folks. This is the Bretton Woods Agreement Act. And this is the Agreement Act that, that created this problem with this Title 22 United States Code Section 286. Okay. This is heavy duty, folks. So uh, remember I showed you about treason. Okay. No person shall be entitled to receive any salary or other compensation from the United States for services as a government executive director, counselor, alternate, or associate, right? Congress, by law, authorizes such action. Neither the president nor any person or agency shall, on behalf of the United States, request or consent to any change in the quota of the United States under Article 3, Section 2, the Articles of Agreement of the Fund. The fund, the International Monetary Fund. All right, let's pull it up here. All right, they're talking about dollar under paragraph six. Okay, that's not what I want. I want. Let's see. Make any loan to the fund or bank. Approve the establishment of any additional trust fund for the special benefit of the single member or of a particular segment of membership of the fund. Yeah. All right. 
let's see, in order to carry out the purposes of the decisions of January 1962 of the executive directors of the International Monetary Fund, the Secretary of the Treasury is authorized to make loans not to exceed two, looks like billion, yep, outstanding at any one time to the fund. If it sounds like I'm hammering on that fund, that's because I am. Under Article 7, Section 1, subparagraph I of the Articles of Agreement of the Fund, I mean, they set this thing up. The Secretary of the Treasury, with the approval of the President, directly or through such agencies as he may designate, is authorized for the account of the fund established in this section to deal in gold and foreign exchange and such other instruments of credit and or securities as he may deem necessary to the consistent constituent. No, consistent and consistent with the United States obligations in the International Monetary Fund. The Secretary of the Treasury shall annually make a report on the operation of the fund to the President and to the Congress. That makes the Secretary of Treasury what? An officer of the fund. Okay. The Secretary of Treasury, yeah, he is guilty. The Secretary of Treasury is authorized to issue gold certificates in such form and in such denomination as he may determine against any gold held by the United States Treasury. The amount of gold certificates issued and or outstanding shall at no time exceed the value at the legal standard provided in Section 2 of Power Value Modification Act 31, United States Code 449, on the date of enactment of this amendment of the gold so held against gold certificates. They're in the gold certificates. The amendment made by Sections 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7 of this Act shall become effective upon entry into the force of the amendments approved in the resolution number 31-4 of the Board of Governors of the Fund. Now, this is called the Brentwoods Agreement Act, folks. And this is what set up Title 22, United States Code, Section 286A, which says that these officers are paid out of the fund. They're not paid as United States employees. Capiche? Is there any doubt in your mind now who gets paid where? They don't. We don't pay them. They're paid by somebody else, the fund. Who is the fund? All of those rich guys that are sitting over in Europe that are trying to control our country. All right? Now. Okay, let's move on here. we got things to do. I want to show you something else, too. Let's look at the very first book of title to, of the United States Code's annotated. And I don't care which section you grab. Grab either uh, Lawyer's Edition or if you grab... Uh, I want you to take a particular note to this and pay close attention. I want this amplified if you can do it. I want it to read right here. The part where it says, This title has been enacted into positive law. Notice the little asterisk right here, folks. There's a little asterisk right here. Everybody see that? Can you see that? You see my pen? Move it till you see my pen point come in. You see my pen point? All right, all right. This title has been enacted in as positive law. Okay? Notice the little asterisk. When you come down here, and all these titles that got the little asterisk, they're all part of the law. Title 11 bankruptcy, Title 13 census, Title 14 Coast Guard, you know, copyrights, you got crimes and criminal procedure, Title 18, right? Now, I want you to notice something as we come over to Title 26 here. Title 26 is the Internal Revenue Code. It's never been enacted into law. It's a regulation. Can you get it? Can you get it? See that? Look closely. Title 26 and Title 27. Do you see an asterisk there? You don't see one, do you? No, sir. <clears throat> That's because there ain't one. <coughs> now, let's look at the other version. The other version is exactly the same. This is the one out of the official U.S. reports for titles. And this one says, can you get my pen? 
You tell me when. All right, sir. Okay. This title has been enacted as law. Look at all the titles that got an asterisk. You'll notice again, Title 26 and Title 27, Zippo. No asterisk. Everybody see that real clear? Pull it over. No asterisk. Obviously, it's never been enacted as law. How could it be? I'll tell you how. we got a case over here called Erie Railroad versus Tompkins, and I'm going to bring it to your attention. Erie Railroad versus Tompkins is a magnificent court case. Basically, what this court case did, this court case is recorded at Volume 304, United States Reports, Section, or page 64 is the start of the case. That's 304, Volume 304, United States Reports, Section 604. Now, what this case does is it sets up a duality of citizenship. There are the citizens that live at the common law, and there are the citizens that live at the national law, or what is called Admiralty and Maritime Jurisdiction. Now, the way they get away with putting this Title 26 and this Title 27 out, the way they do it, is they create this Admiralty and Maritime Jurisdiction, and if you volunteer into it, you are in it. If you step in it, it's on you. Okay? So I'm telling you, don't do that. You know what the doctor says. Every time you go to the doctor, you say, Doc, every time I do this, it hurts. You know what the doctor tells you? He says, don't do that no more. You don't do that no more, it won't hurt, right? I'm telling you, the same thing applies to this. Don't volunteer. How do you volunteer? You enter and you watch what you sign, number one. Any evidences of contracts where you are an admiralty or maritime jurisdiction says that you are a party to the contract. So you avoid that. When you sign that bank draft to get into that bank and that Section 9 form you fill out, guess what? Look at the bottom. You sign to get into an admiralty maritime jurisdiction. What the hell would you want to do that for? It's illogical. <clears throat> when you signed up for that Social Security check. So, <clears throat> how are we going to remedy this situation? 1-207, without prejudice. You signed anything that has to do anything with those guys? Take the rights that they'll give them to you. Take the benefits. But make sure when you sign it, you sign it UD 1-207 without prejudice. And that makes you a common law citizen. And when they pull you into these courts and they claim they have jurisdiction over you, you say, the first thing out of your mouth is, Your Honor, may it please the court, before this matter goes forward, I wish to state that I am here on a special appearance as distinguished from a general appearance, and I am answering in the form of a demure. A demure is an old way of pleading. It's an old-fashioned, old-country, barrister, English way of pleading without granting jurisdiction. In other words, I'll answer out of courtesy, and I'll give you an answer out of courtesy, but at no time am I granting jurisdiction that I put on my briefs. I state my name, I state the defendant, in propria persona, on a special appearance as distinguished from a general appearance for jurisdictional challenges. Now, I've raised the issue of jurisdictional challenges. I'm putting on the record. It's clearly cognizant. Once jurisdiction is raised, the, the burden is on the plaintiff to prove jurisdiction pursuant to uh, McNutt versus General Motors Acceptance Corporation recorded at 56 Supreme Court 502. It says, jurisdiction may never be assumed, but must be substantively proven by the plaintiff claimant. They don't prove it in a timely fashion, latches incurs. Latches is a species of action in a party of reasonable intelligence and integrity, having a right to take an action as is prescribed by law, and having failed to timely do so, loses all right to proceed. So if they don't prove it timely, motion to dismiss, Your Honor, failure to state a cause of action for which relief can be granted, and I'd kind of like to collect my costs and fees for having to defend this frivolous case. Does that make sense to you? All right, now, let's get into this Erie Railroad case. This is a railroad case. What it's about, the guy was walking down the track and a board was hanging off the end of the train and whacked him upside the head. He tried to sue in the state courts. The state courts uh, hammered him. So 
So what happened was Erie Railroad had flipped around and they tried to sue him in the federal courts to get back at him. And they thought they were pulling a fast one. And what happened was the case bounced back on them. And guess what? When it bounced back, it created a very, very dangerous thing. Now, before this, I want you to understand that for 100 years of law, this case was the one that, that was the leading case before this. And this was called McCulloch versus Maryland, the state of Maryland. This is a very leading case. This is the most heavy case. It comes in two sections. That's to tell you how thick it is. So you're going to be reading for a while. This case upheld for 100-plus years, practically almost 100 years. This case is recorded at... <clears throat> Where is the site? The site is, uh, come on, give me a break. It's page 316. What is the volume? You guys are messing with me. You see a volume in there? Well, let's see what they call out here. They call up the beginning of the case. Well, we'll get you the volume. I should know it by heart, but I don't. Let's see if we can get it. It's at 1819 case. It is an old case. And it upheld for years the uh, single citizenship relationship. And it deals with the corporations. The power of establishing a corporation is not a distinct sovereign power or end of government, but only the means of carrying into effect other powers which are sovereign. Whenever it becomes an appropriate means of exercising any of the powers given by the Constitution to the government of the United Union, it may be exercised by that government. Now, basically, it sets up relationships. The Bank of the United States has constitutionally a right to establish its branches or other offices in dis discount and deposit within any state. Right? The state within which such branch may be established cannot, without violating the Constitution, tax that branch. Right? Now, it goes into some heavy arguments on taxes and some other arguments on, on, on programming, but I'm telling you here, this was the law of the land. I want to get a site on this uh, for a... Uh reference. This book was so old when we got it from. It should say what volume it is, but it doesn't. Normally they put it in the case and then they'll cite it one time and then they'll say everything after that supra. They stated it at the beginning. Alright. Volume 4. Volume 4. No, wait. That's not really a good... That's probably... See these reporters in the early... This was 1819, folks. That's when this case came down. So this was going to be, you know, shortly after the Constitution was signed. <laughs> 1791 is when the Constitution was signed, so it's going to be an early case. All right, William McCullough, defendant, blow in your branch. Normally they state the case one place and they state it. But anyway, to make a long story short, McCulloch versus Maryland is a very heavy case. It was the law of the land, and it was replaced by Erie Railroad versus Tompkins. There is no federal, can you see that? There's no federal general common law. Congress has no power to declare substantive rules of common law applicable in a state, whether they be local in their nature or general, whether they be commercial law or in part of the law of torts. And no clause in the Constitution purports to confer such a power upon the federal courts, except in the matters governed by the federal Constitution or by acts of Congress. The law to be applied in any case is the law of the state. Got me? And whether the law of the state shall be declared by its legislature in a statute or by its highest court in a decision, not a matter of federal concern. Now, in 
disapproving the doctrine of the Swift versus Tyson, the court does not hold unconstitutional Section 34 of the Federal Judiciary Act of 1789 or any other act of Congress. It mere Title 26. Huh? It merely declares that by applying the doctrine of that case rights which are reserved by the Constitution to the several states have been invaded. Invaded. That's why they can get away with having Title 26 without having no asterisk. They don't have to have it in law. They're claiming it's an act of Congress. And if you voluntarily enter into it, guess what? You bought the whole farm. A federal court exercising jurisdiction over such a case on the ground of diversity of citizenship. What am I talking about? Diversity of citizenship. I'm talking about dual citizenship, right? Is not free to treat this question as one of so-called general law, but must apply the state law as declared by the highest state court, Swift versus Tennyson, overruled. The liability of the railroad company for the injury caused by negligent operation of its train to its pedestrian on a much-used beaten path on its right-of-way interstate, right, along and near the rails depends in the absence of a federal or state statute upon the unwritten law of the state where the accident occurred. Now, what they're trying to do here is they're trying to justify the existence of this duality of citizenship between common law citizen, which you are, most of you, and this natural national citizen, which would fall under Title 26 United States Code. But I'm telling you to look up Section 6331A of Title 26, and you will see that the Treasurer... The Secretary of Treasury has jurisdiction only over corporations, officers of corporations, and officers of government residing in the District of Columbia and artificial corporation, who are contractors of the fund. Capiche? All right. Now, this is an important case. If you guys are going to be in this seriously battling and want to argue jurisdiction, which is a very good defense on almost anything they can pull on you, you're going to have to read these cases. Erie Railroad versus Tompkins, recorded at 304. That's volume 304, U.S., page 64 is where it starts. It's vital that you understand these arguments. I just finished battling a United States attorney, and we were arguing, and he's talking about, this is all gibberish. And I told him, I said, sir, I don't think you're well-read on the law. All you got to do is read several of these cases, and they'll tell you, one, there is a duality of citizenship. Two, it has to be clearly defined, and three, I have defined it. And now I'm asking you to prove that I'm not a party, or prove that I am a party. You tell me. It's your burden. You're the one making the complaint. You make the complaint, you get the burden of proof. Who says so? McNutt versus General Motors Acceptance Corporation, 56 Supreme Court, section five or page 502. You made it, you prove it. Okay? You don't prove it timely, I motion to dismiss. Fair state of cause of action for which relief can be granted. And I will beat your little tail. Well, I would highly recommend you get to busy to prove it. Yeah. And if you think the stuff don't work, let me tell you something here. Right here, right today, government came, told me, motion to dismiss, right? United States of America hereby moves pursuant to federal rules of criminal procedure for leave to dismiss the indictment in the case to support the statutes, okay? Now, they can't argue. They need a certificate of service, order dismissing indictment, which the judge will sign. The government having moved to dismiss the indictment in the case of this court, being fully advised in the premise that is ordered in the indictment of B and the hereby is dismissed with prejudice, and that the defendant's bond is canceled and is so ordered and adjudged. Wherefore, the United States requests that this court enter the attached order dismissing the indictment without prejudice, but we'll figure that out. We'll fix that up.
See, I don't care if we go to court, because I know who's going to win. And I pray to God that he'll help me do that. So if they want to go to court, I tell them, make my day. When I'm in the court, the guy says to me, well, we could get you for an income tax evasion. And you might win one, but you won't win them all. I looked at him most calmly, and I said to him in the clearest and gracious language, I said, sir, I'm going to advise you to go look in them law books real carefully because I'm going to tell you straight or I have had occasion to look in them law books. And I'm telling you, sir, if you bring that complaint against me, I'm going to tell you to make my day. Because I'm a pretty serious fellow, and I'm not going to fool with you. I'll sue your socks off and attach everything you own, bank, business, and home. So the best thing I can tell you is before you make a complaint, sir, I would highly recommend that you seriously consider the merits of your facts before you go writing a bunch of dribble. And when we got him today, he's talking about, well, your briefs are nothing but gibberish. So we asked him, he said, well, on our proposed order to have it dismissed, do you want us to put it down there for uh, good gibberish shown or just generally good cause shown? So he got a little red in the face and stormed out. But the bottom line is, if you know your facts and you got your stuff together, I'm telling you people out there in TV land, you can do this stuff. I, I, as God is my judge, I, I'm a truck driver. I'm a, I've been an engineer for a while. I've... Uh, I'm a fisherman, a hunter, and a guide. Uh, I, I'm a regular person. I just read a lot, okay? I know people like to add stuff in the game, but I, I'm a regular citizen of the United States. I love my country and its constitution, and uh, I'm not fooling around. I want them to honor my constitution, and I don't think that's too much to ask. I think a lot of fine soldiers paid for it. We've had a lot of patriots, some of the finest people I've ever known have paid for it. Uh, I especially uh, tout uh, Donald Costu, who was the uh, editor of the Constitutionalist newspaper and uh, the, the initiator and starter of the uh, Justice Prose movement in this area. Uh, he was a great man. He was a courageous man. Uh, he was found shot to death in his home with a bullet in his nose because obviously he stuck his nose in places it shouldn't have ought to been. He was a tireless defender of the people and the Constitution. Many a time we uh, cruised the countryside uh, doing meetings hither and yon. He wore a white cowboy hat, which we used to joke about. Good guys wear white hats. Uh, he was a, an exceptional personality. He lost everything he owned, fighting to the death. And uh, I... I uh, I especially offer my my serious prayers for his soul and for the soul of all patriots who have suffered tremendous things to uh, put on this constitution and to keep us going. Uh, the people with the WWCR radio there, uh, God bless you. Uh, radio Free America, Tom Ballantyne, uh, Bill Cooper, uh, the infamous uh, Jack McLam from uh, Vampire Killer 2000. The, uh, there's uh, some serious, serious battlers out here, folks, uh, myself included. There's quite a few patriots all around. Uh, I can't tell you the names of the people that I feel absolutely privileged to know because the list would be so long here it would take another two hours just for the tape. But I can tell you some exceptional people and some of them are on bond and they can't be doing that so <laughs> so I, I'm respecting their you know some of the things the infamous Eugene May E.J. May uh, there's just so many the infamous no tax Jim James Gordon Lott uh, I mean the names are endless um, 
So I'm telling you folks out here, there's a lot of good people out here that are pulling for you that have risked a whole lot, have gone to jail, have stood out in the rain protesting. <laughs> infamous Dave Franklin, who was one of the most leading arguers on constitutional issues of admiralty and maritime jurisdiction. Uh, the outstanding uh, Art Morris, who published the book uh, uh, The Greatest Swindle Ever Told, which is about 4,000 pages of documentary evidence on income tax uh, situations. Uh, we're going to share you a couple of arguments in the end, and then we're going to kind of close it off here. Uh, until the next time. I want to thank you very much for inviting me into your home, and uh, hopefully we haven't bored you to tears, and at the same time you will have a new uh, love of your Constitution and your country, and that you will uh, push like hell to make sure these people understand, hey, this is America, pal. Last time I checked, there's a flag on a pole out there, and it's an American flag. We don't want no blue flag out there. We want that American flag out there. And we got a Constitution, and we're going to keep it. And if you don't like it, move. Preferably someplace out of here like Russia or other places. If you like that kind of government, go for it. Knock yourself out. That's what that's what free America is all about. you got a right to any idea you like just so you don't injure your neighbor. you got a right to free speech, but you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. Got me? Does that make sense? Okay. If you don't like it here, move. You, want, you don't want to exercise your constitutional rights? That's your prerogative, but if you get abused, don't say we didn't tell you. Because uh, God kind of wants us to do this thing, because this is this is His holy land, and He's hoping that we're going to have enough hair on our tail feather to do it. But I want to get into a couple other arguments. One of the things I want to tell you about is procedure. If you're going to go to court and you're going to be your own attorney, by the way, this is the infamous no tax Jim. He just died. God rest his soul. The infamous James Gordon Lott. I helped the gentleman do his appeal briefs to the U.S. Supreme Court, and I can tell you he was one hell of a gentleman. He can quote Tragedy and Hope, Quigley's Tragedy and Hope from uh, from the hip, from memory. And he just passed away. Just recently he died. I want you to see how he died, too. Where is it? It says, He was alone when he died, Monday, and no services planned, and they cremated his body. He fought to the end. To his last day, he was on the Mark Scott program. There's another exceptional patriot, Mark Scott. I, I can't speak highly enough for the courage it takes to come on the radio and tell God's truth. Uh, there's a lot of people like him. Tommy McIntyre, uh, Mike Reagan. Uh, we could get you a list a mile long. There's patriots that come on and tell it like it is. J.P. McCarthy is another one that gets on there and tells it like it is. And I remember this one casual time he got Gus Hall on, and J.P. said to Gus Hall, he says, Gus, don't you get tired of losing? Because Gus was running for president on the Communist Party ticket. And Gus turned to him and he said, J.P., what makes you think we're losing? He said, we've implemented every plank of the Communist Manifesto. We just haven't got the guns from the people yet. And J.P. turned to him and said, yeah, and you ain't going to get them from the people. What do you think of that? <laughs> well, folks, what do you think of that? They're working on it, aren't they? Huh? Now, you're going to go to court and you're going to be your own attorney. you got to be sharp. you got to keep records. You go to court, you write it down. You get anything in paperwork, you write it down. You send them anything in paperwork, you write it down. You got me? You don't be screwing around on me because I'm going to tell you, some of these things got dates and times and things that you got to do. And if you don't take care of business, guess what? They ain't going to take care of it for you. You're your own attorney. If you want, if you want to be your own attorney, you got to have records. you got to keep on top of things. So every time you do something, you write it down. 
and you make sure you can go back and say, yeah, I remember on such and such a date at such and such time this happened and this happened and this happened. You can construct a chronological order of events, okay? <clears throat> now, also write down all important numbers to anybody that has anything that's got to be done. Okay, now, what we want to get into is we want to get into some serious arguments on uh, taxes. Okay. Well, also, we should tell you that if anybody violates your rights, okay, Title 42, United States Code, Section 1983. Everybody got this? Can you see it? Every person who, under color of statute, ordinance, or regulation, customer usage of any state or territory, or the District of Columbia subjects, or causes to be subjected any citizen of the United States or other person within the jurisdiction thereof to the deprivation of any rights, privileges, or immunities secured by the Constitution and the laws shall be liable to the party injured in an action at law, suit, inequity, or other proper proceeding for the redress. For the purpose of this section, any act of Congress applicable exclusively to the District of Columbia. Why do you think they said that? Because they're members of the fund. And they are, they are under Title 26, Section 6331A. Shall be considered to be a statute of the District of Columbia. Now, does everybody understand about admiralty and maritime jurisdiction? I know you don't, but not. Not a little bit. They have created a duality of citizenship under the 14th Amendment. They're claiming there's common law rights, which everybody gets their constitution, and there's national rights where you waive all your constitution. Now, which did you want? Does that sound like a good deal? Sounds like you're being ripped to me. Here we got the 1-207. Remember, 1-207, right? All right, now. Okay. show Jack McClam's magnificent books too, Vampire Killer 2000 and the Aid and the Bet newsletter. We need to get these out to every police officer in the United States of America. They need to understand what the heck's going on here. You get a hold of Jack McClam and his people at Vampire Killer 2000 and they will be happy to put this book out. This explains to your police officers exactly what the heck's going on. And they have an Aid and the Bet newsletter that you can get. Let's get that out, Aid and the Bet. Aiden Bet Police Newsletter, P.O. Box 8787, Phoenix, Arizona, 85066, right? And he has a phone number you can call him, too, I think. Now, they have these vampire killers out, and it tells the police everything they need to know. Also, they publish a newsletter, Aiden Bet Newsletter. You want to make sure, Aiden Bet, okay? And get that to your police officers. I have, what I like to do is when a police officer busts me for something, what I like to do is I like to enroll him in a free subscription. And you know what? He hands it out to everybody. Plus, I'm doing him a service. Now, if you folks don't think this is serious, I'm telling you right now, they're building these work camps, these multi-jurisdictional forces and these work camps all over. Notice that most of them are coordinated between Michigan, Indiana, Ohio, and Wisconsin. And then they got a bunch more out here in the uh, Wyoming, Idaho, the Great West, and they got them in California. Then they got these detention facilities. Everybody paying attention to these detention facilities? Notice where most of them are, and what they call them is regional prisons. Look at all the ones here in Michigan, Indiana, and Ohio, or Illinois. There's a bunch of new ones sometimes. Yeah, there is. I know, I know, I know there is. They prop up and they call themselves... 
Okay, and then they got battle groups, United Nations battle groups. I mean, we've had reports of Russian troops being in Michigan all summer. And we got positive sightings by people that are retired military colonels and above. And we know they were at Camp Grayling this summer. So I'm telling you folks, the time to wake up is now. Wake up, America, before it's too late. Before you lose your God-given rights to some foreign potentate. You might think that you uh, you look like a sucker. I mean, you want to buy any apples off that cart? I ain't buying no apples off that cart because I know they're all rotten. Okay. Now we want to get into um, militia. The next thing we want to get into is the militia, right? And then we want to get into taxes seriously. And that'll be the close for today. Now, those of you who have been in militia groups and everybody's getting all panicky, let's understand a few things about the militia. Whether you like it or not, you are in the militia in the state of Michigan. And I will tell you right where it says that. Article 17, militia, right here. What does it say? And this is from the 1850 Constitution. All the way back in our state to the Northwest Territories they, Treaty, they have a militia. But this is an example of what they're talking about. The militia shall be composed of all able-bodied male citizens between the ages of 18 and 45 years, except such as are exempted by laws of the United States and of the state, but all such citizens of any religious denomination, whatever, who from scruples of conscience, all right? In other words, if you're a conscientious objector, may be adverse to bearing arms, shall be excused therefrom upon such conditions as shall be prescribed by law. And they have con conscientious objector statuses, okay? And you go to the 1908 Constitution, just to show you that this is the God's truth here. 1908 Michigan Constitution. The Michigan militia shall be composed of all able-bodied male citizens between the ages of 18 and 45 years of age, except such as are exempted by laws of the United States or of this state, but all such citizens of any religious denomination who, from scruples of conscience, may be adverse to bearing arms, shall be excused therefrom upon such conditions as shall be prescribed by law. Okay? Now, that's the 1908 Constitution. Now you come up here, now this is just let you know the trend, the trend here. Now, we're in the uh, 1963 Constitution, and in the 1963 Constitution, oh, I wanted to show you a little diverse thing here, this right here. Common law and statutes in continuance in Michigan. The common law and the statute laws now in force, not repugnant to this Constitution, shall remain in force until they expire by their own limitations or are changed, amended, or repealed. So the common law is prevailing. The militia, here we go. I knew we'd seen it. Now notice, folks, as the, as the, thing, as the thing goes on, it gets shorter and shorter. Here's your militia. This is Article 3, Section 4. The militia shall be organized, equipped, and disciplined as provided by law. That's all you get now. Now, when you look in the beginning of this Constitution, there is an there is a, a empowering statutory uh, phrase that says, all constitutions before, everything they had in them are carried forward to this Constitution. And that's how they're allowed to do this. So what would happen in this case, because they haven't clearly defined it here, they would have to go back in the law to the previous Constitution, which would be the 1908 Constitution, which we just read to you. Well, this one right here. So this one would be the militia shall be composed of all able-bodied male citizens 18 to 45 years of age. So that would be the controlling one because that's as prescribed by law, just like they said. Does everybody see that? 
Now, the bottom line here, folks, is a lot of people are all upset about the militia. All the militia is is concerned citizens that are worried about their constitution getting flushed down the toilet. We're not putting up with that stuff. We want people to understand that we love the Constitution, we love our country, and we're not screwing around. All right, here we go. Generally, the militia shall be organized, equipped, and disciplined as provided by law. Now, let's get into that. The single section is substituted for all of this relating to the militia in the present 1908 Constitution. Remember I told you about empowering? The existing article ties the legislature down to an outmoded concept of what the militia should be. Can you believe that? Where our forefathers will be rolling over in their grave. Details as to organizing equipment and disciplining the militia are left to the legislative enactment in the interest of the flexibility and future requirements. Ah, does that mean future requirements if it got nasty and down and dirty we would have our militia come back? Sounds good to me. I could go for that. Bottom line is the people that know what's going around are not screwing around. They join the militia. Okay. Now, Article 10. All right, here we go. Here we go. Article Article 9. Let's pull this out. The militia, organization, and discipline. The legislature shall provide by law for organizing and disciplining the militia in such manner as they shall deem expedient, not incompatible with the Constitution and the laws of the United States. But they're not doing it, right? The legislature shall provide for efficient discipline of the officers, commissioned and non-commissioned, and that musicians and or may provide by law for the organization and discipline of the volunteer companies. Volunteer companies. Notice that. Volunteer companies, huh? Officers of the militia shall be elected or appointed in such manner as the legislature shall from time to time direct and shall be commissioned by the governor. The governor shall have the power to call forth the militia to execute the laws of the state to suppress insurrections and repel invasions. That's what our forefathers had in mind when they had a militia. Now, if they're going to invade us, they're going to change our money, they're going to shut down our constitution. That's why the militia needs to be organized. That's why you need to be down there talking to a militia. That's why you need to be joining the militia. I don't care what church you go to. I don't care what color, national origin, ethnic background you come from. You need to be down to the militia, and you need to be talking to them folks about... This is the United States of America, and I will protect it and its constitutional form of government. And by doing that, if we do it in sufficient numbers, most probably what will happen is the New World Order scammers will realize, ah, the people woke up, ah, we screwed up. We'll have to wait another 300 years to try and pull it again. And let's hope that's what happens. If that isn't what happens, then the militia will defend the republic, because it's like what our forefathers intended. And we will defend the republic, as we always do, with vigor. And we will have a government by constitution. That American flag will be on that pole out there. And anybody that wants to try something different, hey, knock yourself out. But planning a very severe battle because we will never give up the United States of America, its constitutional government, or our American flag, or our American heritage. So this idea that you're going to wear us out, tie us down, otherwise skew us around is nothing but a lot of hoodung. It ain't going to happen in your lifetime. As a matter of fact, your lifetime may not be that long either because we try traitors in this country and the bottom line is the penalty for treason is death and it's not our purpose to threaten or coerce or otherwise intimidate any person but we want you to understand that this is the United States of America this is a country governed by constitutional law that that constitutional law prescribed penalties for criminal acts and that those criminal acts can be punished 
by a lawful mean. We're asking all persons that are involved in all walks of government or there any areas of the law to please, 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 let's get back to the Constitution and quit screwing around. Let's just get back to what's supposed to be done and quit screwing around. Pull back your Federalist Papers and let's start reading. You're going to find out. Everything that's in this book is directly applicable today. We need to do it over. We need to get back to a gold and silver standard. We need to get back to a serious means of trade expedience that's going to hold the It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.